G'day, mate. 40 here. Now, if I were tuning into a show, I'd want the host, like, talking right away, like, no more than a bed of, say, five seconds of music. And yet, I typically let that music run 30 seconds to 60 seconds while I get everything, you know, prepared and ready. So why didn't I do that prep before the, the show started so that you didn't have to listen to that boomer news intro music for, for so long when you want my blindingly hot, spicy takes of what's really going on in Russia. Here's the news. Here are the views that the establishment doesn't want you to know. All right, let me give you the hot stuff that the New York Times won't tell you. All right, so if I was tuning into a show like this, I'd want the host to, to begin, bang, with his hottest, most spicy takes, his most anti-establishment perspectives. Because if I was tuning in to get the establishment point of view, I wouldn't be tuning in to someone like me. Like I'd be tuning into the New York Times, The Daily. All right, I'd be tuning into CNN or even Fox News. All right, why would I go to an amateurish uh, live stream, right, if I just want to get the establishment point of view? So come on, 40. <laughs> I, I mean, all these things that I want from other people, I don't provide. I mean, I'd be sick of this. Like, if I was watching right now, I'd be sick of all this chin wagging, all this introspection all these feels, like, just bring me the gold, right? And if I was going to tune into a show, I'd want the host to put in at least three times as much prep as the anticipated length of the show. So I don't usually do that. It's amazing how often the behavior that I expect from others, I don't provide you know, by myself. All right, Pregapost, guys. You tired of the woke mob infiltrating our schools and workplaces? Join our community of free-thinking high school, college students, and young professionals. Together, we use digital media to change minds, promote American values, America, and build meaningful connections with thousands of other patriots around the world. Wow, most of my life, I would have been thrilled to belong to, to Prager Force, but now in, in my old age, I'm thinking of starting 40 Force, where instead of changing the world, right, we will sit around and we'll introspect about how wrong we've been uh, uh, hey man on this or do that. you know what this training is hey about man. nope hey man. i guess we'll find out whoa hello and welcome to your diversity equity and inclusion training first i want to commend you i understand that you now have three times as many black women and transgender employees than you did in 2020 well done now, let's remind everyone of our zero tolerance policy. Remember, any of the following is grounds for termination of employment. Displaying American flags and pride of country, walking around without your pronouns, saying Merry Christmas or discussing God, not letting a person of color in front of you in line at the cafeteria. Now say it with me. Black Lives Matter. Defund the police. Hate all men. Silence is violence. Let's make sure that victims speak before oppressors, Stephen. What does this have to do with selling computers? Challenge, guys. Join, uh, join 40 Force. Okay, what else do we got here? Unlock your freedom, guys. Unlock your freedom. Join Prager Force. Would you like to receive SMS text messages for new video updates? Wow, this seems cool. Do you feel alone because you love this country, believe in free speech, and refuse to be a part of the woke mob? Then you need to join Prager Force, Prager Youth Community for high school, college students, and young professionals under 35. It's free to join, and the benefits are endless. 
Join a network with thousands of free thinkers worldwide and make new friends just like you. Get access to exclusive events and meet thought leaders and influencers in the movement. Have you ever wanted to ask Dennis Prager for advice, meet Will Witt, or get to know people like Michael Knowles, Ali Stuckey, and Brandon Tatum? Well, now you can. Looking for a job at a great company? PragerForce members are first in the running for internships and full-time positions at PragerU. As a member, you might even get featured in a PragerU show. There are a lot of problems facing our country today, and PragerForce members are working toward a solution. Together, we take part in missions, like flying the American flag, supporting our law enforcement, and fighting critical race theory on campuses or in the workplace. By joining PragerForce, you can make a difference. Join today at PragerForce.com. Wow, PragerForce. Feel the force. Feel it. Right, uh, what the heck is going on in Russia? Enough of this silliness. So I really enjoy Peter Zion's videos. My, my question is, am I getting a a cartoon version of reality or am i getting something that's profound Peter Zion here coming to you hey, from Peter. marshalltown iowa this is my old middle school how's it me. going man uh, i was trying to buy my own business and have some personal time and attend the birthday party here Oops. in my hometown uh but apparently there's a coup going on in russia so no rest for the wicked uh short version it was over the course of the 23rd 24th and 25th uh, a guy by the name of Prigozhin, who is the leader of the wagner paramilitary group who has been an unofficial arm of the russian military now for several years has launched an arm in its direction his troops have left their positions in ukraine they have moved into Russia proper. They have captured the city of Rostov-on-Don, which has a population of about 1 million. They're attempting to flip Russian troops to their sides. Uh, and the Russian government, uh, Vladimir Putin himself, has declared Prigozhin to be a traitor uh, and has called upon the military and security services to crush him. Uh, Prigozhin has said that the president is misinformed, but it's okay because we're going to have a new president soon anyway. Uh, <laughs> as someone who very vividly remembers duck and cover drills and uh, is very aware that the Russians have been aiming nuclear weapons at us uh, my entire life, uh, there's something just deeply hilarious about this. Um, the trick here is to not blow anything too much out of proportion because there's a lot we don't know. So let's start with what is certain. Uh, Rostov Adnan is the primary logistical and communications point for the Russian military in the entirety of the Ukrainian war. So first and foremost, the Ukrainians are making a lot of popcorn here and are getting very serious about their counteroffensive. Now, until this point, at least until the 23rd, the counteroffensive was not going particularly well. In any battle where the Ukrainians are facing off against the Russians, and the Russians only lose three times as many troops as the Ukrainians do, that's a battle that the Ukrainians have lost. They're at a huge material and demographic disadvantage, uh, and they just haven't been able to achieve breakthrough. Uh, there are multiple lines of defenses that the Russians have built over recent months. It starts with minefields, and as you get further back, it's anti- Look, I don't like cartoons. I don't watch cartoons. I, I enjoy Peter's eye, and this seems like pretty solid, strong analysis to me tank barriers and trenches and for the most part the ukrainians haven't been able to get through the minefields so i don't want to call it a failed offensive i don't want to call it a stalled offensive but it's definitely not been going as much as well as they'd hope but on the 23rd we saw two things uh, number one but i was a, a rabid follower of dennis prager for decades i voted for george w bush twice i mean i'm a sucker I, like any guru comes along like I, i'm there to, to sign up i mean i'm i'm an intellectual gigolo I, I fall in love with every comely new idea that comes along but ultimately, I stay loyal to, to none. Why am I so vulnerable to gurus? Change in military strategy. Uh, the Ukrainians have gone from targeting commanding patrol bunkers to targeting ammo uh, dumps, which is something you usually do before a big push. And uh, the Chughar Bridge uh, in Crimea uh, was hit by a few missiles to make the rail system completely impassable until repairs are done. Now, the Russians do have the technical capacity to do that, but it's going to be something that takes weeks, which means that there was this window in western Ukraine where the Russians in the western half of the front, from Militopol west, uh, were not able to function. Um, and that provides an opportunity for Ukrainian forces. Now, I'm going to put all of that together now 
in a video from something that I was originally planning on posting before the coup started. So here's the Ukrainian section of that, and then we'll come back to the Russian section. Uh, we're now well into the third week of the conflict, and the Ukrainians haven't achieved any sort of breakthrough. Uh, there's two main lines of defense that the Russians are trying to hold. The first is a series of minefields, and the second is a series of more strategic defensive emplacements like dragon's teeth and trenches. And the Ukrainians haven't really been able to get past the minefields to get to the real defenses yet. Uh, and what that means is they've just kind of been bogged down in attritional fighting. And because the Russians have an order of magnitude more industrial plant and reserves and at least a factor of three more population, any battle in which the Ukrainians are duking out uh, mano a mano is not one that they're going to do well in. In fact, any battle where the Ukrainians only kill three times as many Russians as they lose in their own troops is a battle they've lost. So it, instead of seeing the dramatic breakthroughs that we saw in Kyrgyzstan and Kharkiv last summer, uh, it's been a slugfest and it hasn't gone well. That said, a couple things. Number one, we're still early in the offensive. They're still probing for weaknesses. They're still going after command and control. And then second, in the last 96 hours, a few things have changed. Uh, first of all, uh, three, four days ago, the Ukrainians shifted from using their missiles to target command and control systems to um, going after ammo dumps. And you would do that when you're getting to the next phase of the operation. You feel like you've broken up their ability to react. And now you're trying to not just to trip their forces, but make sure that the forces cannot actually get meaningful supplies. But the real issue happened the morning of Thursday, the 22nd of June, when the Ukrainians put some serious holes in a few supply bridges that are critical for Russian forces. And to understand the significance of that targeting shift, we need to look at a few maps. Here's our first map of the Ukrainian space. Nothing too ex exciting here. Uh, the red line is roughly where the front is. The Russians occupy the territory to the east and south of that line. And the yellow bars are where the Ukrainians have put their primary thrusts. Now, the, the one on the left there, that's the Zapranitsa front, uh, the Ukrainians have been expected to go in that direction since the very beginning of this conflict, uh, because if they can push down to the Sea of Azov, they can basically isolate the entirety of the southwestern front and Crimea, because not only would there no longer be a land bridge between Russia proper and Crimea, but the Ukrainians would be able to target the Kerch Strait Bridge directly. Uh, but they had more success going further into the east because there were fewer defensive works. But still, in all these cases, you're talking about advances in the single digits of kilometers. No sort of strategic breakthrough where mobile Russian forces, excuse me, where mobile Ukrainian forces can get in behind the Russians and isolate them and break them up and, and force strategic retreats and routes. Okay, here's a zoom in on Ukraine. Uh, the single most important thing here is, of course, the Kerch Bridge. An attack, uh, unclaimed attack, we don't really know who did it, uh, but either the Americans or the Ukrainians took out uh, one of the spans of the Kerch Bridge last summer. Now, the Kerch Bridge has three lines to it two two-lane road connections and one rail connection. The Ukrainians, Americans, whoever it happened to be, were able to take out one of those two-lane road connections and start a series of fires on a rail car that was going by on the rail bridge at that time, which warped the bridge. Okay, I don't know where you primarily get your news and analysis about what's going on in the Ukraine war, but what's better than this? I mean, where on network news or in the, the New York Times do you get more interesting thought-provoking and commonsensical analysis in this. Now, he, he may be completely wrong, but if he is, he's like, he's got me conned. I, I'm convinced that this is good stuff. It made it impossible to handle cargo. So no more trains in and out of Crimea from this route. It needs to be the primary route and only two of the four road lanes. So everything has to go on truck. And when they do have convoys coming or going, they have to shut it down to other traffic. So that was a big hit. And it forced the Russians to shift their supply route over to this area, to the land connections that go into Crimea. So let's zoom in there. Now, first thing to understand about this area is a lot of this is not land. This entire zone here is a series of brackish lakes, which obviously you're not going to be running cargo across. In fact, there's only really two ways to cross. On the left, you've got the proper land connection, which is an all-land route that goes through southern Ukraine. It is the furthest connection from the front. It's not that the infrastructure there doesn't work, it's just that it's not great. 
However, if you go to the yellow arrow, the one further to the right to the east, you're looking at the Chanhar crossing. Now, Chanhar has a rail connection and a road connection. That is these connections that the Ukrainians put some holes in. They use a special kind of warhead, of which I'm not going to go into detail because it's not my focus, uh, but it blew all the way through the concrete, blew all the way through the rebar, put a giant hole right in the middle of the thing. You're not taking trucks across that. You're not taking rail across that until such time as these are repaired. Repairing it is not beyond the capacity of the Russians, but keep in mind that it's been months since Kerch had that hole put in it, and the rail connection there has still not been rebuilt. One of the many, many downsides of the Soviet dissolution is we've had a simultaneous education crisis and demographic crisis now decades in progress. The technical education system in Russia collapsed back in the 80s, and their demographics, well, they've had a death rate that's been higher than the birth rate for 30 years now, which means that the youngest suite of people who have the full skill set to be technical experts, they're in their 50s right now. They'll turn 60 this year on average. They still haven't replaced the spam and courage. They still haven't replaced the rail system. There's a question as Wait, so is he saying that, that Russia just doesn't have enough people with expertise and education? to be effective to whether they can now the chonar crossing is not nearly sophisticated instead of being a high elevated suspension bridge it's a low block bridge it's not blocking navigation or anything this is not a navigable waterway system they probably can do it but it's going to take them a few weeks which means in the meantime any cargo going to and from ukraine has to come from that western bridge and this means that the soldiers in ukraine the russian soldiers in occupied ukraine are facing a double bind back to this map Notice the city of Mariupol. Basically, any Russian troops that are west of that zone um, have basically been cut off from supplies that come from Russia proper off in the east. They got everything they needed from Crimea, which is, you know, more difficult to support now. And now with the China Bridge offline, it's going to take about a week for the Russians to reroute everything further west and then cross a larger distant chunk of territory. That would suggest to me that the Ukrainians are as ready as they can possibly be to make a push in that direction. Now, coming down from Zaporizhia, it doesn't really matter where they penetrate as long as they reach the Sea of Azov. It could be east of Mariupol, it could be west of Militopol, it could be anywhere in between. Any way that they can cut that land bridge forever and then have the range in order to hit the remains of the Kerch Bridge direct. If we're going to see an attack, if this counteroffensive is going to really manifest as something, these are exactly the circumstances you would expect the Ukrainians to shape, and now they've done it. And since there's going to be a window before the Russians can redirect supplies further to the west, the troops in the multiple area are now completely cut off, vulnerable. They're not going to get reinforcements. They're not going to get fuel. They're not going to get artillery shells and ammo. Now would be the time. Now, that's the strategic picture that we're seeing right now. Okay, now back to the Russian side of things with the coup. Rostov-on Don is the primary jumping off point for Russian forces into Crimea and the southern front. And, is and uh, Peter Zion released this video 24 hours ago. So he's not up to date with the seeming ending of the, the Wagner Group coup. And uh, join, join the tsunami of viewers we got seven right now watching us on youtube we've got one person watching us on rumble we got one person watching us on twitter one person watching us on facebook uh two people watching us right now live on odyssey we are going out spreading the gospel to the entire world long as Rostov Don is offline it is impossible for any russian forces anywhere in the crimea or in occupied ukraine uh to reinforce to get more troops to get equipment to get fuel so this is a beyond a golden opportunity for the Ukrainians to give the Russians a serious drubbing. The question is, how long will it last? Uh, while there have been many, many reports saying many, many, many things, there is no sign of direct large-scale fighting between Wagner forces and Russian forces at the moment. Uh, but the Wagner forces are definitely in command of the logistical train on which the entire Russian army in Ukraine depends. And in that sort of situation, um, wonderful opportunity for the Ukrainians. Okay, next chunk, we're going to go into some of the stuff that's going on in Russia proper. Ah, oh, okay, good stuff. All right, that that's good stuff, isn't it? That that wasn't just something that felt like good stuff. That was the real stuff. That was fair dinkum, right? That that fair dinkum, fair dinkum analysis. Still here, same day. Uh, <laughs> uh you're gonna hear a lot of crazy stuff out of Russia over the next several hours and several days. You're okay, but not from Peter Zion. He's not gonna give us anything crazy, right?
You're going to hear that Pergozin is having conversations with military commanders. You're going to be hearing stories about military commanders flipping sides. You're going to be hearing about defections within uh, Pro, uh, Wagner itself of people going the other direction. You're going to hear about... No, actually, what we heard is that uh, Pergozin had given up, reached a deal, and left the country. So none of what Peter Zion says we're going to be hearing have we heard. Assassination attempts on all sides. You're going to hear about the Chechens siding with Progozin and Wagner or against, or you're going to hear about them going home. You're going to hear about the Russians blowing up bridges on the way to Moscow so Wagner can't make it. You're going to hear about forces gathering along the way. You're going to be hearing about airstrikes on Progozin because Wagner is so terrifying that the Russian military doesn't want to engage. You're going to hear, about, you're going to hear lots of stuff. Some I don't think we heard any of that stuff. Please correct me if I'm wrong. Some of it will even be true. Most of it won't. The problem here is that we are in an information vacuum, uh, or something worse, that it's been filled with misinformation. So a couple things to keep in mind. First of all, uh, there is no free press in Russia. There hasn't been for 20 years. That was one of the first things that Putin did uh, when he took over. He removed all the satirical shows, he removed all the news shows, he removed all the investigative shows, and it became basically a one-man uh, government and a one-state propaganda system that has become more and more and more intense, especially since the onset of the Donbass war back in 2014. So official news channels are limited, and any time a Westerner tries to get in there to do some reporting, the Russians tend to uh, arrest them on... And, I mean, our official news sources are excellent, man. Those poor Russians, they're really suffering. If only they had the equivalent of Fox News, CNN, and MSNBC. Drug or sedition charges. And in fact, uh, you've got a number of high-level journalists that are in jail right now awaiting trial and or execution. So the normal methods of getting information are thin. Uh, folks like me, especially since 2014, have really relied on Twitter because it's basically crowdsourced information. Uh, okay, so whether you're getting the news in the United States, France, Germany, England, uh, Russia, China, what you're getting usually is the product of bureaucracies with access to grind. And then they release information, reports, laws analysis that is then picked up and packaged by the mainstream media who package it in as sensational fashion as possible depending on their particular audience trying to attract as many eyeballs as possible or as many subscriptions as possible to send these reports and analysis and leaks from bureaucracies um, and there was always a battle between the Russian bots and the Russian trolls on one side and the people who were trying to get information out of the other. And when we got to the start of the war in February of last year, the bots and the uh, trolls just went away because a lot of governments and a lot of institutions, including Twitter, did a big crackdown on Russian misinformation. But then Elon Musk took over the operation, and in the time since, he has pushed down, they had the algorithm push down the relevance of anything involving Russia and Ukraine, so it's actually below things like vaccine misinformation, election misinformation, in terms of what gets brought up to the top. Uh, he's banned or shadow banned a huge number of accounts that I used to depend upon for knowing on what's going on in Kiev and Moscow. Okay, we got corrections coming in through the chat. Bridges blown, Chechens involved, attempted airstrikes on Wagner column. All right, thank you for correcting me. And most importantly, uh, he's allowed the bots and the trolls to come back in force. So there's easily two, maybe even three times as many bots and trolls uh, from Russia on Twitter today. Uh, not just that these are sources of misinformation, they're not all on the same side in this coup. Some of them are vitally ultra-nationalist, and they tend to side with Progozin and Wagner. Others are clearly employees of the state. <laughs> and so now, Twitter has become an utter shit show of these various factions, misinformation factions, trying to shout each other down about what's going on in Russia. I don't really believe any of them. And so confirmation in this sort of environment just takes forever, because, you know, if you don't get live video, it's really hard to confirm if something's actually happening. And now we've got Elon and Putin and Progozin all with their own narratives of how what's going on and keeping track of Wait, 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 wait. We don't really know what's happening unless we get live video. Really, is live video the best epistemic source of truth? I'm skeptical of that. I mean, I, I know from my study of the Torah, guys, that the eye is the most superficial organ. That's not the Torah commanders. Do not follow your eyes after which you will prostitute yourself. 
So I'm a little skeptical of this idea that uh, live video is the best, most unimpeachable source of, of truth. It's the most immediately, viscerally compelling source of truth. But I would say, you know, accurate analysis and accurate reports, even if they're delivered via written word or, or spoken word without live action video, may very well be superior epistemic sources of truth. It's just going to be a nightmare. Now, this will sort out over the next several days as uh, the reality of events on the ground overtakes the propaganda machine and things are moving very quickly. And all of those things that I outlined at the beginning, of it, those are all feasible outcomes. Uh, but obviously, they can't all happen at the same time. So uh, I will do my best to parse through them. I will t try to lead with the things that I have confirmed, just like I did in the first video of this series. Uh, but it's going to be really, really messy. And there's no way around that. One more thing about the propaganda thing. side of this. Uh, while we have a good idea of which side the trolls are on, which side the bots are on, uh, there's all of Russia's disinformation channels internationally uh, that are all of a sudden up in the air. So, like, what's going to happen? Yeah, because only Russia employs, you know, bots and trolls. All right? So if you see any bots and trolls and propaganda out there, it, uh, it solely comes from Russia. The United States would never engage in such things. ...to Hungary's Viktor Orban, who has basically become a pro-Russian shill within the European Union. Uh, is he in favor? Is Viktor Orban really a, a pro-Russian show within the European Union, or is he doing the best he can in a very difficult situation? Uh, Hungary's future lies with the West, but Russia's right next door. I mean, it, it's like uh, mocking uh, Switzerland for being uh, Nazi shows uh, during World War II. Switzerland was between a rock and a hard place. They had to get along with both the Nazis and the Allies during World War II. They were in an impossible situation. They did the best they could in very trying circumstances that, thank God, you know, I don't think, you know, any of us have ever experienced. So those of us who don't have a lot of real-world responsibilities, we should probably be humble before lecturing those with real-world responsibilities, the lives, the quality of life of millions of people in your hands, such as what Viktor Orban has or what the leaders of Switzerland had during World War II. It's, uh, it's very difficult to be between two implacably opposing forces. Uh, of Putin holding on to control, or does he like a more militaristic Russia because it would be more of a foil to be used in the European Union? What about people like Tucker Carlson who have gone in hook, line, and sinker with the Putin side of things? Really? Is, is Tucker really hick, hook, hook, hick, hook, hook, hick, hook, line, and sinker with the Putin side of things? Or is he hook, line, and sinker skeptical of how there is essentially only one narrative being presented to us by official sources? One narrative coming from establishment sources. One narrative coming from our foreign policy establishment. Only one narrative coming from our leading writers and thinkers. And that is the moral imperative that we must support Ukraine, even if it means risking World War III and nuclear annihilation. Okay, so uh, emotionally, I'm 100% on the side of Ukraine. Uh, rationally, I don't think it's in America's best interest, Europe's best interest, Ukraine's best interest for us to be providing weapons to Ukraine. Russia is going to take those parts of Ukraine that are predominantly Russian speaking. And I don't think there's anything the West or Ukraine can do to stop that. So I am not for arming Ukraine. And that doesn't make me pro Putin or anti Putin. What I am is pro America. <laughs> I am America first. What is in America's best interest? And it really doesn't matter to American best interest whether or not. Russia takes over and absorbs Russian-speaking parts of Ukraine. 
now that you have a more of a nationalist firebrand who we might find more ideological attractive than Prigozhin, uh, what about people like RFK Jr. who have recently become on the uh, the Russian dole or old-timer folks like Jill Stein of the Green Party? You know, all of these commitments that the, the Russians have cultivated very carefully over the last... So really, uh, Jill Stein and RFK Jr., are they on the Russian dole? Are they skeptical of the unanimously intense just hatred of russia that seems to dominate our establishment our elites uh, our foreign you know policy crew right i i don't see how provoking russia and fighting a proxy war with russia is in america's best interests and i, I don't think that makes me a putin shill video number three on the ongoing coup slash revolution in russia um Let's talk about Wagner. Now, according to Prigozhin, the leader of Wagner, they've got 25,000 troops and they've been able to attract a few defecting units from the Russian general military. Uh, we don't know if that is true. Uh, one of the things about, to remember about Wagner is it gets its troops from two sources. Source number one are Russian veterans, particularly people from some of the higher ranks, special forces, Oman troops, Spetsnaz, that sort of thing. Uh, they tend to be um, relatively competent, and so Wagner generally has the best troops and the best logistical capacity within the Russian system. What they don't have is their own hardware. They rely upon the Ministry of Defense for their equipment, for their armor and their air defense, and they have no air assets at all. No helicopters, no jets. So if you see reports of airstrikes on Wagner, especially if they start moving up to, to Moscow, you should take those reports very seriously, because if you were Putin, that's how you would cut them up. Let them get out of the exposed on a 10-hour drive to Moscow and just start... So I can give you all the critiques I want of Peter Zion, but this is how Peter Zion works in my life. When I learn there's a new Peter Zion video, I watch it pretty quickly. I think I am more quick to watch a new Peter Zion video than a video of anyone else of which I'm aware. So that's how I roll. Blowing them all on the road. Uh, as we know, if you take out the front echelon and the back echelon, the rest of them just kind of scramble in a, in a death pile in the middle. Uh, that is a very realistic way of how this can all end which, you know, unless Pergozin is completely stupid, wouldn't do it. But remember, this is a guy who is a convicted thief and former caterer. He is not a military super mastermind. And I read Peter Zion's three books, and I thought they were excellent. Uh, I'm really glad I did. I'm glad I invested, I don't know, 30 hours of time reading his books. Okay. Uh, anyway, barring a complete collapse of the Russian military structure and political society, which you, know, you can't rule out this is Russia, this has happened before, uh, Pergozin and Wagner really have no, cho no chance here. A uh, small number of troops isolated in a specific part of the country, and while that might be hugely significant for the Ukraine war, uh, they are just too far away from Moscow to make their voices heard in any meaningful, sorry, phrase that wrong, not their voices heard, to uh, make their desires reality. Uh, there's just too much space, too many Russians, uh, and too much air power. Uh, that doesn't mean there aren't consequences here, even in, if this is a massively failed coup. Uh, Ukraine we've already talked about, but what about the rest of the world? Wagner, because it's one step removed from the Russian military, which is you know, part of the problem, has been Putin's go-to tool for dealing with the international system for over a decade. And so almost all Russian military deployments around the world aren't actually regular Russian military. They're primarily Wagner. That's true in Syria, in Libya, in Sudan, in the Central African Republic, and on and on and on. And now the... <laughs> it's, oh my God, there's, there's so many weird ways that this could have gone. This is, was definitely not one that was on my radar. But now that Wagner is persona non grata, every military... Uh, Every Russian military base around the world is going to get shut down by the Russians in the next few weeks. Uh, that, of course, assumes that... Uh... Okay, is, is this right? Is this an accurate prediction? Every Russian outpost in the world is going to get shut down in the next few weeks? Countries who are trying to seek favor with Putin don't go against Russian forces at Putin's... Oh my god, this is just delicious. Okay, oh. Yeah, I've got to get myself some popcorn for this. Okay, folks, uh, the bottom line here is that Wagner's military capacity is a subset of Russian military capacity, but the personnel are different. And so now that the personnel have changed sides, uh, you should expect to see a complete disintegration of the entire 
Russian global position beyond the former Soviet Union. Within the former Soviet Union, as a rule, it is the Russian military who is in the pole position. But beyond that, wherever it happens to be, it's Prigozhin and Wagner that are the face of Russian strategic foreign policy. And now that that's on the other side of a rebellion, that is going to completely die. Now, for those of you who have been worried about the, the long duration of Russian power, this is great, because remember, Wagner is the best troops that Russia has. It's the sum total, it's really the only place that Russian vets go to after they leave the regular military. And they are scattered around the world. They are vulnerable. They are now without supplies or fuel or diplomatic cover. They are enemies of the state. Wow. It's going to be a wild week, folks. Oh, one more thing. Um, big question that we don't know the answer to. Uh, there are two sources of troops for Wagner, the military veterans and also convicts uh, that they've pulled out of prison to use as cannon fodder. Now, convicts are good as cannon fodder for offensive operations, but they're not good for defensive operations. So and they're probably not good for sending into, say, like a city like Moscow where there's regular Russian forces either. So basically, the convicts have become a non-issue in this. And so it really comes down to the rest of the troops. Wagner no longer has the ability to recruit. All they can do is try to flip Russian regular military units. That is their only source of troops. So Wow, is is this like homophobic? Is he trying to draw an analogy here with with gays that they can't reproduce? Therefore, any way they can reproduce is by grooming. I mean, I, I gotta disavow if anyone like reads something homophobic into Peter Zion's commentary here. So Wagner absolutely has no staying power in this fight. The question is, what can they do in the very, very, very short term? They have access to the military stocks around Rostov, and that's it. So this is probably going to be a mad dash from Moscow, which would be suicidal, or a, a protracted defense in Rostov to draw upon the stocks where they can actually defend. Regardless of which those options are, this is fantastic. But I don't think either of those happened. Instead, they reached a deal. Fantastic for the Ukrainians, because if it's option two, defense of Rostov, then all of that equipment is no longer available for Russian troops in Ukraine at all. If they make a mad dash for Moscow, then we have a very public, very global, very humiliating military rebellion in the heart of Russia, in which the Kremlin and Putin are the direct targets. I would expect them to win and win handily, but Russia will not recover from that sort of image. And from a tactical military point of view, if Prigozhin and Wagner are making a mad dash for Russia, then forces, the best forces that Russia has outside of Wagner, are in Ukraine. They're going to have to leave Ukraine in order to catch up with Wagner in order to defend the motherland. <laughs> yeah, that, that didn't happen. The, the Wagner group got apparently within 200 miles of Moscow and then, and then turned around. So when I, I get interested in a topic such as trying to get my head around you know, how seriously I should take Peter Zion's analysis, I like to go to Google Scholar. So I go to Google Scholar, I, I put in Peter Zion. So let me do that right now. It's been a few months since I've, I've done this. But uh, what, what I notice is that there's, there's no academic interest in the work of uh, Peter Zion, right? There's no uh, academic analysis. So it quotes his 2022 book, that's the top result. Then an article he wrote in 2010. Then another book he wrote, The Accidental S Superpower. Then the 2020 book he wrote, Disunited Nations, A Scramble for Power in an Ungoverned World. The Absent Superpower, Shale Revolution, A World Without America Analysis, Russia's Far East Turning Chinese for ABC News in 2014. Something he wrote for Stratford in 2009, The Financial Crisis and the Six Pillars of Russian Strength. The United States, Europe, and Bretton Woods that he wrote with George Friedman for Stratfor Geopolitical Intelligence Report 2008. Something he wrote for Stratfor in 2006. Oh, here's a book review. Oh, man, but there's nothing I can cite. The end of the world, Peter Zion is wrong. Here's why. That's a book review from December 27, 2022. I missed that. Okay. Solar social science network okay 
uh, this a determinist demographics coupled with geographic determinism that ignores ideology, culture, history as factors sweeping, shaping international relations as a consequence of the blind spots and a willingness to make grand sweeping conclusions. Zion takes up several unfounded positions and reaches unrealistic conclusions. His work, though inherently, inherently co- internally coherent, is crippled by its blind spots. All right, we can... This is pretty awesome. We can download this paper. So this is the first academic analysis of which I'm aware to uh, to look into Peter Zion. But it dis- well, it doesn't look like a very academic analysis. Okay, what a disheartening title. What's the what's the source? All right, uh, book review. Download this paper. Independent. Hmm. Or this is being peer reviewed. And he says, Peter Zion is wrong. He elaborates on a complex set of interlocking assumptions linked to empirical details leading to logically entailed conclusions with broad-ranging implications. Several of the assumptions Zion makes are wrong. What exactly is Zion wrong about? Zion predicts the U.S. will withdraw from the world into a form of neo-isolationism. He argues that globalization has not benefited the U.S. That's untrue. A better argument would be that the costs of global hegemony, hegemony in dead Americans and trillions of dollars wasted for little or no benefit are simply too high for American voters. However, even the better argument is also untrue. He designed miscalculates the costs and benefits to the USA of engagement. The U.S. will not retrench, withdraw, or enter into any other form of neo-isolationism because states are rational power maximizers, and the USA benefits with a sort of signorage from global hegemony. Literal signorage in the case of the fact currency, figurative signorage, in the form of several extensive and mutually supporting alliance and trade networks, as well as soft power in the form of an attractive culture and ideology. He designed overestimates the cost of the failed global war on terror. Okay. Uh, it was a costly failure. Zion doesn't recognize just how much punishment the proles can take and still support the home team. So we wasted about $7 trillion fighting the global war on terror. So Peter Zion seriously underestimates the capacity of non-elites to absorb casualties. Well, it doesn't, this analysis doesn't grapple with the financial cost. Right, we're looking at about $7 trillion, I believe. Okay, Peter Zion underestimates the benefits of globalization to the USA. Free trade makes business more efficient, resulting in greater riches for all. It makes war less likely. Countries heavily invest in trading each other, enjoy prosperity, and less likely to go to war against each other. That's nonsense. Germany and England were each other's number one trading partners right before World War One. Didn't stop them from going to war with each other. Zion predicts the USA will retrench into isolationism because liberal internationalism failed. In reality, the US will not become isolationist because the benefits of hegemony are far greater than its costs. At first, Biden thought he should leave the hapless Ukrainians to their fate. Ukrainians had other ideas. Within a month, the USA was forced to re-engage in international affairs. The U.S. cannot withdraw into neo-isolationism, even if it wanted to, since rockets can cross oceans, and the U.S. has a large, wealthy populace that will not be ignored by other great powers. As I predicts the end of globalization, in reality, globalization will continue or even intensify. Trade will grow because people are greedy. Maritime patrols won't disappear, so piracy will stay suppressed. 
Sahin believes the U.S. will withdraw from the globalized world hegemony it built over the course of decades at the cost of trillions of dollars. He fails to appreciate the powers of the sunk cost fallacy. So we've already sunk these costs. Why not reap the benefits? Peter Zion predicts the Chinese government will fall due to a demographic collapse and deglobalization. Too bad China isn't Russia. Even though Chinese productivity will diminish as its population ages, Chinese culture remains hardworking, optimistic, and civil. Xi Jinping has centralized all state power into his own hands. China's a mass surveillance state. The Chinese don't want yet another revolution and civil war. Even if they did, they wouldn't be able to wage one due to mass surveillance and control through digital mass media. China is a perfect tyranny. The U.S. and China are on a clear collision course. However, China does trade and invest with many other countries in the U.S., many of which will be happy to undercut and profit from a USA embargo. China will not collapse, global trade will not collapse, and there will not be pirates and famines. Why is Zion wrong? Because many of his basic assumptions are wrong. He overestimates decoupling and insourcing. He buys into geographic and demographic determinism. He is overly determinist about demo demography and geography. These factors influence do not determine global affairs. Britain and Japan both become industrial powers despite a poor resource base. They were forced into trade. Their defensible position enabled them to avoid war. Geography and demography do have a real influence on world affairs, but so do ideology and political choice. So just as astrologers say the stars incline but do not compel, geopolitical analysts would do well likewise, not geography and demog demographics incline, but do not compel. Marketing. There may be other reasons for Peter Zion's errors. One might be marketing, peddling a pack of proverbs about pirates and privateers. Sure, it sounds exciting. Instead of figuring out how to prevent and win the next war, we could simply imagine ourselves in a fantasy world like Mad Max and Thunderdome at sea. Sounds much more exciting than putting a tourniquet on your friend's arm or covering his sucking chest wound in plastic where you hope he will still breathe despite coughing up blood. That's war. It is hell. Zion's desire to feed and profit from others' fantasies about war as a grand adventure is professionally disgusting. Any ways to make money without cheerleading for the Grim Reaper. Another error, according to this review, convenient wishful thinking. Zion's errors are due to convenient wishful thinking. If you imagine China will inevitably collapse, then you need not learn Chinese, nor need you understand Mao Zedong, Deng Xiaoping, or Xi Jinping thought. You need not do a deep historical analysis of Chinese history or Chinese foreign relations. If they collapse, that's mighty convenient. The USA wins by default. So... Zion's analysis short-circuits critical, insightful thinking about China, how the U.S. and China could and should relate, and encourages foolish reactionary tendencies. The best and least palatable explanation why Peter Zion errs so badly is disinformation. He picks up the Russian myth that Russia lacks defensible borders and runs with it. In fact, Russia is ice to the north and east, deserts to the south, and has vast forests, even larger marshes, as well as many very wide north-south rivers to the west. Russia enjoys six to eight months of severe winter every year, year after year. It is vast. Every invader of Russia learns that Russia is entirely defensible. The deceptive four weeks of European summer notwithstanding, so Zion buys into the myth that Russia is indefensible and thus must expand to naturally defensible borders. So this myth is very convenient for Moscow since it justifies all kind of foul actions, helps make it likely to be fighting a war in Poland rather than in Chechnya, Dagestan, Yakutia, or any of the other non-Russian nation subjugated by Moscow. Russia is a multinational state with serious centripetal tendencies, meaning towards collapse. Having a ready-made excuse for foreign war all the time, any time, is a great way to distract from domestic problems, to build national unity, and keep the army on its toes. 
He designed uncritically accepts the Russian myth and adds his own knife twist. Due to supposed demographic collapse, Russia has only one remaining chance around 2020 to expand in borders and sensible limits. This is a myth. Russia can and does expand its population any time with immigrants from the Caucasus, Central Asia, and even China. However, if you believe the first myth and the second myth, then you have no choice but to make your move on Estonia or Ukraine around 2020. This is disinformation. Uh, Peter Zion peddles the convenient myth that the Chinese Communist Party and the People's Republic of China will collapse. This won't happen because the Chinese people and government are hardworking, sober, realistic, intelligent. They're not crazy, aggressive, drunk, incompetent kleptocrats. Peter Zion does not speak Chinese. He's not studied Marxism. His ideas about China are less accurate, less likely to be taken up by Chinese people. Not even Falun Gong exiles seem all that into Peter Zion. Chinese Communist Party can see what is happening in Ukraine and thus reassessing their chances at a successful invasion of Taiwan. Cross-straits relationships between China and Taiwan are improving, even though one country, two systems is now no longer possible for mainland integration. The Falkland Islands campaign shows how difficult amphibious operations are and how they can have unintended consequences. Zion could be encouraging China to overreact by placing it under economic and demographic pressure in hopes of provoking an ouster of the Chinese Communist Party. Zion provokes deep thinking about some of the factors which determine international relations and grand trends. His market-driven energy sector analyses are superb. His corporate clients could never tolerate any inaccurate forecasts. When he strays outside of energy and agriculture markets, leaving the field of economics and entering into state-to-state relations, the results are a fascinating mess, overly determined by geography and demography with inadequate consideration of history and ideology. Okay, this was a book review by Dr. Eric Engel, LLM. Don't know what LLM stands for. Let's get more analysis of Peter Zion. Let it pass. And I don't know anyone at the Defense Department who's happy about that. Because if the Russians see this as an existential conflict, and they know they can't hold a match to NATO, then nukes are their only option. So... The primary reason why everyone in the West has gotten shoulder to shoulder on this is they know that if Ukraine falls and Poland's next, there will be a direct fight. The Russians will lose, and then there will be a general nuclear exchange. So there's plenty of really solid reasons to root for the Ukrainians on this one. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Having planted already several flags, let's just say that um, up to a point, this is inescapably correct, that Ukraine was a frontier on a wider pattern of escalation. But whatever that pattern actually was needs to be discussed further, and we'll get to it. Go. Okay, this is from the Vlad Vexler channel. This video was released five months ago. Now, when this whole thing broke out, what what do you think the, the you think the Russians expected Ukraine to just give up? Absolutely, that's what happened in 2014 for the most part. And what are the possible scenarios for Russia? I mean, if it, it seems like they're completely committed to this, they are. And if they don't win it, the the Russian position is that our demographic structure is, is in such diseased and aged and terminal decline that the Russian state will be turning the lights off sometime between 2015 and 2070 anyway. Anyway. Yeah. And stuff. Hyperbolic statement. The, uh, they've had a series of big melon scoops out of their birth rate throughout the history, uh, World War I, World War II, the collectivizations under Stalin, Brezhnev's uh, mismanagement, Khrushchev's mismanagement, uh, the post-Cold War collapse, and a lot of these stack on top of each other. And the biggest one stacked on top of the post-Cold War collapse. So there are more Russians in their 50s and their 40s and their 30s and their 20s and their teens. And then they lie about the data of the teenagers on down. Uh, which means that there, isn't, there aren't enough Russians who have been born in the last 30 years to carry the ethnicity forward much farther. And stop. Now, again, this is hyperbole that probably reaches a point where we can ask, what does, ex- what does this mean exactly? Carry the ethnicity forward. And so they're thinking if they can forward position their military and plug those gaps now with their last generation of young people, then they can kind of die on their own terms. 
50 years from now. Have but, they really thought about this in that term? Like, yeah. This, this, one way or another, this is the end of Russia. The question is whether it dies in the long term on their terms or in the shorter term when they're completely unmoored. Because if they fail to secure those borders, then they've got a 2,000-mile open border with countries they consider to be hostile. And they have no way of moving troops around in a way that would allow them to defend it. They'd just be waiting for somebody to come over and knock them over. And you, you believe that they're aware of this, that they, they can't survive past 2050, 2070, right. whatever it is? So Joe's pushed a bit. And instead of answering Joe's question about what's in the heads of these Russian leaders, Russian leadership, it is restated what he said before. And now Joe is pressing it again. That's the underlying reality, but is that what the Russians are also thinking, right? And let's see. I think that's what's been driving them because 2022 was the last year where they had a sufficient number of no people in their 20s to even attempt this. So from my point of view, not only did the war always have to happen, it always had to happen by now. Jesus. Okay, so we're gonna stop and have a little break here. Now, let's be clear, first of all. Um, are we listening to somebody who gives the impression that they know a great deal about Russia? Yeah, by the standards of somebody at the bus, but an enormous amount. What about by the standards of a Russia expert? What a Russia expert is isn't a factual matter, of course. This is an evaluative question, because what a Russian expert is is inseparable from what a good Russia expert is. But no, I don't I don't recognize that. Um, and preliminarily, right, without pushing Peter too much into a, a corner, but a Russian expert probably answers these questions. You know, is that what they think, Joe says? And the answer should be, well, they don't think that, but that's why they don't think that. And that's what they really think or what they think they think and so on. And this is how Putin's thought has evolved. And this is where he is now. This is where he was four years ago. This is where he was 12 years ago and so on. Instead, right, Peter just returns with his geopolitical chessboard. Um, and Joe's questions are not answered. So what is going wrong here? And again, this is not about giving a, a squad out of 10 for Peter on this. This is about um, you coming to me and asking for my view, but it's also about us working through our sort of epistemic skills. Now, let's look at something sociologically important. And that's that the majority of uh, serious Russia experts would not be able to relate to what Peter is saying. And that's obviously a matter of alarm bells ringing, right? Your alarm bells should be ringing if that sociological fact is true, and it's true. Um, maybe it's not a fact, it's an evaluative judgment, but it's kind of a sociological reality that most Russia experts begin with the thought that Putin um, got into this war out of considerations not about national security, but about regime security, right? And the way I render this for you, historically in our videos, is that we say, look, part of the reason for this war, very big part of the reasons for this war, is Putin feeling that it's a necessary defensive enterprise to avoid a situation whereby Russia, a few years from now, is wobbly, right? the regime is fragile, and at that point, Ukraine on Russia's border, culturally, um, um, a country of relative proximity to Russia, um, where Ukraine is independent and democratic at that moment of fragility for the Putin regime, because that evokes in Putin images of Gaddafi and images of Saddam, um, because Ukraine could act as a platform that tilts this precarious situation in Russia against Putin's favor. And he wants to secure himself against that scenario. And he considers, um, hypothetically, Ukraine as a threat to his regime, as a threat to his life, Right? And as a threat to Russian civilization that in his mind is tied to the will of a single individual, Putin. So sociologically, this is interesting, right? But I'm also putting the epistemic foot down here too and saying that these matters of um, regime security, roughly construed as I've construed them, are driving right, the war causally. But let's talk about the connected national security aspect here. Now, um, Peter's saying we've got a demographic crisis-mediated desire to plug a geographical hole for national security. Now, does the sociology improve here? Do these Russian experts wake up and say, no, oh, okay, this is sounding better? I don't think so. Um, when I listen to this, 
Um, it's not clear that I'm listening to somebody of comparable knowledge about Russia and the causes of Russian policy. And I'm not listening to a picture of causality that I recognize. Sure, there is a pattern of escalation there that um, goes far beyond Ukraine. And it's about challenging the West, challenging NATO, challenging Article 5. And there are hypothetical scenarios in which Russia has Ukraine, has Moldova, does a true build-up, let's say, on the border of the Baltic states and takes things from there. But this is about shaking up the international order, exposing a weak response, a weakness of the West. It's going to respond with weakness because the Russian doctrine is that the West is now in irreversible decline. This decline, if it's real, which is to some extent real at the level of democracy, is nevertheless vastly exaggerated in the Kremlin. And then we're going to have a little reboot of the international order. Right? So it's a, uh, an escalation that anticipates a somewhat passive response from the West. But this isn't about demographic crises, and this is not about plugging holes. And moreover, there are mystical, quasi-mystical reasons for the war to do with Putin's civilizational turn, circa 2010 to 2014 and onwards. This is unavailable right, through Peter's goggles, and certainly alarm bells have to ring. But I'm going to carry on. So, go. What caused all this to be so poorly managed? Well, Russia has always been poorly managed and authoritarian. But under Putin, it's taken a much darker turn uh, because of the nature of the end of the Cold War. Uh, if you remember back to 1982, there was a coup in the Soviet Union. And Chernomyrdin and Andropov and Gorbachev were FSB, well, then KGB agents, who basically overthrew the old system of Brezhnev and took over. And tried, because they're the only ones who really had a full understanding of what was going on. They controlled the information. Uh, they were not able to save the system. And so it Stop. broke. Now, this is not hyperbole, but this is a kind of um, distance from historical concreteness that's really worth bringing out. Um, I'm going to give Zayn a pass here on Chernomyrdin. Chernomyrdin was certainly in politics at the time, but he was young. He wasn't even a um, minister of the gas industry yet, I don't think. He was so Vlad doesn't speak as dramatically, as compellingly. He doesn't communicate as effectively as Peter Zion. But uh, his analysis might be a little more informed. I was, gonna, was about to get that position toward the middle of the 80s. And Chernomyrdin was later prime minister of Russia and uh, I believe ambassador, Russian ambassador to Ukraine. Peter gets a pass because he really means Chernenko, not Chernomyrdin. And it's a slip of the tongue. And we've got to be clear about that. But Chernenko and Gorbachev were KGB agents. Really? For real? Um, Andropov was. Andropov was head of the KGB. And there was a coup. What kind of coup was there, Peter? Um, maybe Peter has a legitimate answer, but Brezhnev died. He wasn't overthrown. Um, and there were then significant changes, of course, of various kinds of interesting stories there. Andropov and Gorbachev had a kind of unlikely relationship. Andropov met Gorby in the late 60s, and um, they had challenges and disagreements. But um... So one thing I noticed very early on about Peter Zion videos is he doesn't seem overly hung up on accuracy or truth, right? He has these these hot takes that are great fun to listen to, but uh, frequently factually off base. He had a, an eye on Gorbachev, or a positive kind of eye. Um, meanwhile, Gorbachev was exasperated by Andropov's incapacity to analyze the situation as it really was. Um, but what Peter's coming out with here is something that uh, an historian or a political analyst of an academic kind really wouldn't say, because this is, this is um, uh, a cartoonification that is, is, is worth really worth noting. Let's go on. And Putin is the successor to that legacy because he was also in the KGB. And we're now in an environment that between the terminal demographic structure of the Soviet slash Russian system 
and Putin's personal paranoia. So he's gone through and purged what was left of the KGB, FSB, of anyone who had personal ambitions to succeed him. We're left with an entire political elite of only about 130 people. And Putin has removed anyone who has leadership ambitions. So there, there are academic analyses of, of China, which I think make more sense, such as the 2015 book Unrivaled, why America will remain the world's sole superpower by Michael Beckley and his follow-up Danger, the Coming Conflict with China by Hal Brands and uh, Michael Beckley. Oh, now, they all see the world the same way. They all kind of agree with Putin on what's at stake oh. here. They all agree with what's at stake. That's unclear. I mean, how many people in Putin's Security Council would have started a full-scale invasion of Ukraine? Between zero and less than a handful, perhaps? But where Peter is right um, um, is that Putin, well, Putin's actually marvelous at picking people. He's very good at picking people, but he only picks people who are profoundly corrupt and profoundly loyal, right? which restricts the field. Um, and to that extent, Peter is right. But then Peter goes on to say something that is, again, hyperbolic, um, that there are 130 people in this sort of elite, and that Sechin is the only one out of them who could ever do a revolution or a coup against Putin. Um, but that if he did a coup against Putin, Peter says, then the um, rest of that elite would uh, stop him or punish him afterwards, get rid of him afterwards. Now, that could be an okay sort of use of hyperbole, but of course, if you took that literally, that's just a silly statement that no, no serious Russian expert um, would make. Um, and then he says later that Putin is in his mid-60s, which isn't, isn't true. But again, this is the sort of thing I would give him a, a pass for. So what I notice when people want punditry on foreign affairs, domestic affairs, punditry on, on anything, they want stuff that's going to make them feel good. They, they don't put a premium on good epistemics. Come on, guys, check your epistemics. Epistemics, first to how do you know what is true and what is, is false? And charm and emotional power and communication abilities shouldn't overpower the importance of uh, good epistemics. All right, let me have a look at another analysis here of Peter Zion. They will be interested in. It is certain that your viewers will be interested in military aircraft, sir. Anyway, let's see what we have. A research, your viewer searches, and the first term is... Peter Zion? Office, who's Peter Zion? He is an American geopolitics speaker, sir. Ah, okay. Okay, let's have a look what this gentleman doing. Wow, that's a lot of interest. It's actually beating the F-22, it's beating the F-35. I, I, I need to understand more. What will the world look like in five years? The end of the old world order, geopolitics, innovation, and deglobalization. Okay, let's see. Hmm, oh, that's interesting. Oh, come on. Really? Yeah, that's a good idea. Cannot, this cannot be true. Come on. China's decline, the Russian grab. He has been like this for a week. Oh, you're there. I watch all the videos on Peter Zion's channel. I also read the, his last book about the end of the world that is just beginning. I read The Accidental Superpower, and I watched from beginning to the end at least 15 long presentations. So I'm probably not the best expert on Peter's thoughts, but I think I got the main points. I think I'm understanding why he is so popular, or at least he's so popular in the United States. He's telling a large part of the American public what they want to hear. The core of his message is that the end of globalization is now, and this is going to cause a deep global crisis. It is going to last a few years, but the United States after this are going to come out on top because of their demographic structure and their economy that is not so intertwined with the rest of the world economy. Russia and China, on the other hand, are going to crash and burn because of their demographic profile and other economic and geopolitical reasons, leaving the United States as the only superpower for decades in the future. So I, I told a friend that uh, who 
watches as many Peter Zion videos as, as I do. And I told him, well, he, he, Zion does present a cartoon version of reality. And my friend said, well, I, I love cartoons. Sure. If I were an American, an American from the United States, I, I would love to hear this. This is a very comforting and reassuring vision. No use to say I don't agree because otherwise I wouldn't be here making this video. But I don't want to be misunderstood. Feedzad is extremely accurate and extremely informed. His data are factually correct. His interpretation of specific issues is often spot on. He's an excellent professional with years and years of experience and I'm definitely not questioning that. It is the different cultural background that brings me to a radically different interpretation of- Okay, let's go to the chat. He's implying Ukraine was invaded because it acts as a kind of liberal democratic West Berlin. Wouldn't Putin have to distinguish every other liberal democracy to maintain regime security in that case? Good point. Epistemic humility is what we are after. Charm and bombastic takes unconcerned with actual truth might as well be pro wrestling promos. Peter Zion is one of my top five disagreements with Luke, but I enjoy Luke's semi-serious Sunday shows. This guy has all the secret insights, says Half Galician, except on diet and exercise. Of the history of the world after World War II, which in turn is shedding a different light on the events of today. But I am not going into these details. Uh, this is not a geopolitics channel. Geopolitics is not my main area of expertise. However, please, let's make some points about some of the world militaries, and I have something to say about that. On several occasions, even recently, PZ said that the Chinese Navy is not a blue water navy. And the reason for this is that, that several Chinese ships have a very limited range, so they are inherently defensive ships. Well, this was maybe true 20 years ago, but today I really don't understand where this is coming from. The range of modern Chinese ships is the same as other ships of the same category in service with other navies in other countries. For example, the estimated range of the Type 55 is 5,000 miles. The range of an Allied Burke destroyer is 4,400 miles. The range of a Chinese Type 52 destroyer is 4, 1,500 miles, according to the most reliable estimates. The two classes, Type 55 and Type 52, number about 45 units, with four units being built right now as we speak, which is August 2022. So you can classify them as a small core or modern ship in an otherwise defensive navy. They are basically the Chinese Navy mainstream. The Chinese modern frigates, the Type 54, have a shorter range, but it is... Yeah, half Galician says this is... <laughs> this is the more prestigious weekly magazine, Luke Ford stream. Like uh, Sunday morning on CBS News with Charles Corot. It's pretty much aligned with Western ships of the same displacement. But beyond the range of the ships, even more important for sustained and long range operations is the capability of refueling at sea. United States has the. Yeah, 40 has a utility line like the Chevrolet, that, that's what he produces on a daily basis. You have to be prepared for a lot of schlock. But then he releases his Cadillac prestige streams on Sunday mornings largest fleet in the world, but probably the Chinese fleet is number two. The Chinese fleet includes two large 45,000 tons of displacement supply ships, which are pretty much equivalent to the American supply class, plus there are 14 smaller vessels. And it seems that Chinese are going to build two more large ships in the near future. So I would say that China's supply capacity is pretty much proportioned to the current mission of the... God forbid, God forbid, guys, are you suggesting that the more prep I put into a show, the better the show will be, rather than just winging it, you know, coming home at... Uh... 10 to 6 on a, on a weekday and then like firing up the start live streaming at 6.05 p.m. With, with a handful of, of notes or just maybe one idea that I got while listening to my favorite pop song. Chinese Navy, including long-range power projection. There are obviously other elements that made the Chinese lag behind the US Navy in terms of global power projection, but I think that they're doing pretty well when it comes to range. 
Japanese Navy is the second in the world and it is a full blue water Navy. And this is another common point that is made by Pizza Hut. Well, the Jap yeah, you'll notice if I don't stream for a week, I come back with a lot of energy and a lot of compressed content. When I stream every day, I stretch out the content that I have. But uh, Ford does some of his best material after the spiritual tranquility and spiritual reflection of the day of rest, the Shabbos. Japanese Navy is indeed modern and very capable, but surely it is behind the Chinese Navy in numerical terms, and it definitely doesn't have a full blue water projection capability like the Americans have. It is definitely a numerically strong Navy, it has a lot of submarines, which is interesting, and potentially a lot is going to change when the F-35Bs are going to operate routinely from the two Izumos. These are going to become full-fledged like carriers, and we have already discussed on the channel the importance of this new type of carrier ship. I suggest you to watch the video, links up above and below. In terms of blue water projection though, the Japanese ship's range is pretty much average aligned with the rest of the world, so there's nothing special to see here. The replenishment fleet though is quite small, there are just five vessels, none of them larger than 25,000 tons. Surely the Japanese at the top of their readiness can sustain at sea one or two or even three battle groups, but so can the UK, so can France, so yeah. So I've been waking up at 3 a.m. most every day for several weeks now, so one day last week, I, I didn't wake up until 5.10. And that was like fantastic. I had, had so much sleep. I probably got close to seven hours of sleep that night. Uh, normally I, I get about five. I mean, I would stay in bed past 3 a.m. if I could. But I wake up at 3 a.m. just like eager to write. You know, I was working on my blog at 3 a.m. And I only allow myself a cup of coffee about once a week. So I had my weekly cup of coffee this morning and I am so fired up, I am so charged up, I am so excited to be here. The Japanese Navy is important for it but definitely doesn't have a global reach. China won't reach the technology level of the United States before 2080 and only if the United States stand still. This is another of the statements that I've heard from Pizza Hut. Okay, just staying on what is relevant in the military world. China in this case has... So you may think cup of coffee, no big deal, but guys, when I I get my nootropic stack correct? Oh, I forgot. Damn, I forgot. I forgot to take my L-theanine with my cup of coffee like uh, four, four or five hours ago. That's supposed to make the coffee high last twice as long. But I, when I do drink coffee, remember, I'm stacking it on top of my modafinil. But I'm supposed to stack it on top of my modafinil with my L-theanine. Doggone it. ...has the advantage of being the second mover. Just knowing what is possible and what has already been done is a great advantage. Usually the second one to develop autonomously a technology... Okay. okay. Blessings to Elliot Blatt. Oh, blessings, bro. Uh, I'm in the car. It's a car call. Sorry, dude. Blessings. Um, hold on. I'm not hearing you through the speakers. This is actually a limitation. You're not um, hearing me. No, it's not. It's it's the car. It's my car issue. I, I feel like uh, it's my fault. I feel like I've let you down in some way. I'm to blame. Well, you have, but not. not I screwed regard. up again. I have been not, such a bad friend. You've been nothing but goodness and kindness and blessings to me, and yet every time you call in, I I let you down. I'm I'm no, coming to you through the wrong aperture. Yeah, that's right. You're going into the outdoor, bro. Doggone it. So anyway, Luke, I had a little, uh, a little surprising, uh, a little surprising event uh, this past week. Yeah. Um, 
which I think it's an amusing story. Like, um, you know, deep left Jokel? Yes. All right. So I'm like sitting, uh, you know, it's bright and early. I'm like just, you know, sipping coffee, looking at the phone, and I get an email that comes in. And it's from deep left Jokel. And he's like, hey, I'm in San Francisco. You want to meet up? And I'm like, what? This is bizarre. And I'm trying to put the pieces together, like how this could have happened, you know? And, you know, I used to go into his streams and I used to kind of troll him a bit, you know? And he was saying that, you know, all of the sort of de- degradation that we're seeing in San Francisco and so forth uh, in other cities is exaggerated by the media. And, you know, we shouldn't believe this. It's a psyop, this kind of crap. So I'm like, bro, you should come to California and I'll show you, right? Yeah. And he sort of took that as actually a literal invitation. I was sort of being rhetorical. And he sort of took it literally. <laughs> this is what I was able to put together. Um, uh, why he would do this. But anyway, you know me, I'm up for a game or two, you know. So like, uh, yeah. I'm like, you know, let's play ball, yo. So, but he says, I'm staying with three friends. And they're, they're coming too. So four people in total, right? I'm going to pick up and put in my car and give them like the, you know, the little tour, right? And I'm like, "Eh, you know, it's going to be tight. You sure you want to do this, et cetera? And they're like, yes, yes, let's do it. Let's do it, et cetera. So I said, okay, I'll pick you up at this corner at 3 p.m., right? And it's this corner in front of this restaurant at 3 p.m. So it was just like these ultra precise instructions that because I knew these things always tend to blow up, you know, like people just can't execute the most simple tasks, even if you spell them out for them, like in, 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 in you know, excruciating detail. Unless, 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 unless they have the galaxy brains like deep left Joko. Yes, I figured if anybody doesn't need this, it would be the galaxy brain that is deep, deep left Joko. So I say, yeah. meet me here at three o'clock. Now, Luke, if you were going to pick me up at a certain corner at three o'clock, what time would you arrive at that corner? Uh, 2.45. Exactly, Luke. See, you know. You don't say, oh, I'll show up at 3 and maybe, maybe get there by 3.15. You say, I'll show up at 2.45 just so there's no chance, no chance of being late, right? I'm going to respect, you know, my time such that I'm going to make sure, even if I have to wait on that corner with my phone in one hand, and, and my, my cock in the other. And my cock in the other hand. I'll be there on time because I don't want to steal other people's time. I will I... loathe myself if I steal other people's time. And I don't like hating myself. Exactly. And so I'm saying, what are the chances? Now, bear in mind, it's a two-part contract. So I sat up here at 3 o'clock. I'm going through traffic. I'm stressing whether or not I'm going to arrive at 3 o'clock as promised. My word is my bond, bro. Yeah. You know, and so I'm tra- I'm holding up my end of the bargain. Sure enough, I arrive at that corner at 2.58, you know, two minutes early, you know. And 
So I'm thinking, okay, where's deep left Jokel, <laughs> right? And he's not there. And I'm looking around. So I drive around the block, you know, and now it's like three, 302. And where's deep left Jokel? Not there. And so, you know, just the veins are just bulging out of my head. At this point. You know what I mean? Yeah. I am so ripped at this. But I'm saying, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to keep together. I'm not going to ruin this whole little adventure just because someone's two minutes late. So finally, an email comes in. Hey, man, we're on our way. We'll be there within 15 minutes. And I'm like, you know, uh, I'm like, this is, and then I, I immediately tell you, I say, where are you now? I'll pick you up right now. You know, apparently that email wasn't received. So bottom line, you know, they end up getting there at 310, 10 minutes late. Okay. Uh, you know, it's not the end of the world, but it's not an auspicious beginning. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it doesn't bode well for what's to come. It's just this fact alone. So sure enough, deep, deep left Jokel piles into the, into the passenger seat, and his three droogs get in the back seat, one, one after the other. Now, these are all guys that I would say are about 25 years old, uh, high IQ, reasonably fit, but very shy. They're all shy and quiet, right? There's a certain quiet, timid, fearful energy about them, you know? Uh, maybe they're being polite, but, you know, I remember if there were, like, five people in a car when I was growing up, it would be raucous. Yeah. Right? There would be jokes upon jokes upon jokes, and people would be laughing, and it would be sort of this, you know, juvenile but fun experience, Right? Not these guys, bro. It was it was like a funeral dirge. Nobody was saying anything. And uh, so I'm driving around, you know, just a little side uh, observation. I don't know if this is true across the board with this whole generation, but they were uh, um, just weird, weird in that way. So anyway. Wait, wait. Is it, is it because you're Jewish? Like Deep Left Joker doesn't care for the Jews. Oh, he doesn't? No. He's not Jewish himself? I don't believe so. Is that true? Wait, were you wearing a that... yarmulke? Were you wearing a yarmulke when you picked them up? No, no, no. But um, okay. uh, he has a lot of Jewish mannerisms. Do you think yeah. they were afraid you were going to sexually assault them simply because you live in San Francisco? No, they weren't afraid of that. No, they weren't okay. afraid of that. Did you play the so bone? Anyway, did you play the bone in the car? No, what I did, what I did play, I, I, I did. I thought about that, but I played uh, that eighty-eight lines about forty-four women song. Like a, okay. as a little icebreaker to see if I played some air supply. <laughs> yeah, I should have. But that went over like a dead balloon. Like one of the funniest songs of the 20th century. They didn't get it. You know, they were uh, they weren't impressed. So anyway, I'm saying so. Okay, so immediately I know I'm in for a long afternoon at this point, right? Because um, I basically struck out, and so. We decide that we're going to drive across the bridge and go up to Mount Tam. Do you know Mount Tam? Mount Tamalpais? Marin County? Not intimately. Okay, it's a little, it's a little teeny mountain. It barely, it's like a big hill, but it's technically a mountain. Um, so there's a road. You drive up the top. You get this sprawling vista of, uh, of the city and, it's, and the ocean. It's really nice. You know? It's really romantic. It's, it's, really it's romantic. romantic, bro. It's very romantic. I mean, romantic. a great play for a circle jerk. Yeah, exactly. That's what, that's what, that was part of my plan. So 
we, we, we and the dudes, we pack into the car, we drive, we're in the car, we drive up. And so the conversation, I swear to God, Luke, just as we're getting on the, uh, they asked me who I listen to, you know, what I listen to online, you know, what, what's what I watch. And I swear to God, Luke, you will be, as soon as we get on the bridge, one of the, one of the dudes from the back seat says, Hey, do you know Luke Ford? <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I was like, uh, fortunately, because the traffic situation on the bridge, I couldn't like, uh, I didn't think of a funny joke. You know, I I wanted to like pursue that line of inquiry, but because of the traffic, I just wasn't on my game. And uh, I said something like, "What do you know of Luke Ford?" And then the traffic got up, and then the subject changed, and then it never went anywhere but it was an amusing thing nonetheless so i, I didn't know uh i didn't know deep left joke was an anti-semite i didn't uh, well, how did you learn this well he just makes it very clear he doesn't doesn't like the jews and he won't talk to anyone who talks to a jew so is that true that's what he says i mean who knows no, but the, I've never seen that. I mean, I've seen a, a fair bit of his uh, content, but I, I didn't know that was the answer. Yeah, he all he, he cares about is his channel that platforms Jews. No, I can't. I think you're misunderstanding. Well, I, I'll tell you about. It. Here's what I. He doesn't like to be upstaged. That's one thing uh, I noticed. Like, um, he uh, he got very. Um, like he he he's a type of guy. He, he sort of interacts with the environment. He makes jokes. Some of them are funny. Some of them aren't. But if you make a joke and it's funny, or even dare I say, funnier than his joke, you know, he yeah. he he feels hurt by that. Yeah. <laughs> so um, anyway, I thought that was amusing. He so he needs to he be. He doesn't really have friends. He has more like uh, fans. Yes. And then I, I, well, yeah, exactly. So on the way down from the mountain, we have this conversation saying, so uh, what about the C word, bro? You know, I'm using a lot of bro talk, you know, and like the C word, he's, what's the C word? And I said, career, right? Yeah. <laughs> what's your career plans, you know? Um, and then he says he wants to be a cult. He wanted to be a cult leader, you know, and I, thought he was being funny and ironic, but I think he sort of semi-believed it. You know, I think uh, he does kind of fancy himself a leader of men of sorts. Um, very much. Very much. So I think, he's, uh, I think he's completely serious about that. He does want his own cult. Yeah. That's what he's building. So when people, some people like, you know, immediately I'm, I checked out, like, I'm like, you know, I can't. Some something like that. I just so absurd. I mean, it's nothing to engage with. And now I think I'm dealing with a crazy person at this point. You know, you you sort of move from being sort of immune, you know, somewhat eccentric to being a crazy person. So anyway, uh, we go through this, and then he's sort of really obsessed about like where in the country he ought to be and why he should be there, and what are the different attributes of one place versus another, and you know what's the most optimal place. Oh, okay, and that's another thing. So all these dudes were like very much internet 
creatures, right? Yeah. They all had special diets, like very special, peculiar diets they learned about on the online. So one guy was like, um, he ate only beef, eggs, dairy, fruit, and honey. Those are the only things he would allow himself to eat, right? A very yeah. peculiar paleo diet, right? And then uh, I think uh, Jokel is kind of like a keto guy. And then this Indian guy. So we stopped at this um, little restaurant on the way down the mountain. And this Indian guy who's part of the, their, you know, their, their cult group, their, their, their posse, he ordered, um, he ordered dessert for dinner. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and this traumatized me. This triggered me. And uh, so I don't know what the particulars of his diet were, but uh, that was struck me as an odd move. Um, so anyway, the conversation it just it didn't really happen. It wasn't like uh, it wasn't it wasn't fun. Like, it wasn't like a rollicking good time. It was a very strange, uh, stilted, stiff. Um, um, just unsatisfying experience. How long experience. did you guys spend together? Uh, I would say, I'd say about four hours. Wow, and it, it didn't loosen up. I think dinner. It didn't loosen up that much. No, maybe a little bit, but not much. Um, um, I tried to. I was doing all. I was doing my damnedest to like loosen the whole situation up and. I just don't think it could. I don't think I would appreciate it. Okay, so now that's part. So let's end that chapter. And so during the course of this, I took a bunch of photos of them and their group, you know, and uh, just being a good host and so forth. And so I email. Well, I, I checked my email and I thought maybe I'll just get like a little email from Deep Left Jokel saying. Hey, thanks for taking four hours out of your life to, you know, be a tour guide for me and my friends. You know, just a little note, a little thank you note. You know, look, when you go to an orgy, yeah, you kind of want a thank you note afterwards. Yeah, I mean, you, with every you single, put out. Yeah. With every single sex partner, I expect a thank you note. Yeah. I mean, if I'm it's like, 10 in oh. one night, I expect a thank you note. Yeah. For each, each one. one yeah. You know, a little calligraphy, maybe genuine. a little... Something genuine, just like one, like just one heartfelt sentiment is enough for me. Yeah, I'm not needy. I like a little. One. I like a little calligraphy, to tell you the truth. I think, yeah. I think you should take the extra time to get one of those, those pens and an inkwell and make you know just draw my name in a nice cursive style, you know, to show what the experience meant for you. I don't know. I'm old school, though. You know me, Luke. I'm I'm yeah. trad. I'm 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 a you know. I'm a paleo con. I like I like the old things, the old style, the old way of doing things. I'm part the of old ways of having orgies. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I got this. So anyway, um, and so, so did there was you get no, that? Did you get? I like did a not get that, Luke. No, I didn't get an email. No, I didn't email? get the email. Nothing. Zero. I mean, don't you remember? You told me you love me, baby. I mean, nothing. Bro. Wow. I'm, I'm After doing all the form. things that you guys did together, I mean, you yeah. went up a mountain, you drove around. Yeah. So, uh, now, to me, 
I don't know. I, I can't even process that. It's like, uh, how, how do you compute this? All right, I'm parking. Luke. Hold on a second. That, that's okay. So we're talking about uh, Ken Brown, aka Deep Left Joker, who you know, has his flaws, but he's also he's not a toxic person. He's not a nasty person. He's not someone who engages in you know nasty feuds. He shares his ideas online. He shares his life online. And uh, out of anyone you can you can watch on, on the distant right, I, I say he's pretty harmless. But I don't think there's anything right wing about him. You know, his his political takes are very normy, very like Democrat v Republican kind of crap. You know, um, the, the, I didn't at least he didn't. I didn't. Okay, I made a way. You know, obviously I knew our politics differed, but I didn't really want this whole experience to be about politics. I wanted this to be like, you know, something social, something relaxing. You know. Uh, but when he did talk about politics, it was simply about, it was just very kind of normy. Oh, those are all a bunch of Republicans. I hate them. Yuck, yuck, you know, kind of stuff. Hmm. Hello? Yeah. And so do you think he's, uh, do you think he's neurotypical? No, 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 no. I think he's got narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, Luke? Yeah. But I'm not, I'm not a psychologist, Luke. What do I know? Uh, I mean, most of us who spend so much time online, there's usually something broken and off. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what so about anyway, his friends? Did they seem neurotypical? They did. They seemed um, very shy and introspective, every single one of them. Is that they did um, most of their socializing online? I think so. I think so. And they were all software people. They were all... Um, you know, programmers of one sort or another. Um, like one of them had these, um, you know, they'd all, they were all sporting these various doodads that they got on Amazon. These various um, customizable uh, idiosyncratic possessions. Like one of them had these shoes that were sort of like gloves, like the, all the toes were individualized. You know, you ever seen those shoes? Uh, probably, but I don't really think much about shoes. Though I did see an amazing pair of shoes yesterday, bro. I mean, amazing shoes, an amazing dress, amazing. Wow, wow, wow. It's the first time I thought about shoes in donkey's ages. <clears throat> well, hold on. I mean, wow. But uh, I mean, I'm still all a quiver. I mean, okay. it just made, made right. me want to be a better Orthodox Jew. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just climbed three flights of stairs. So Do they wear shorts? Uh, Do they wear suit and tie? No, 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 no. They were sort of athletic wear, tight fitting. Uh, they were they were generally fit. Okay. So which was a which was a nice surprise, right? They weren't these land whales that you know we've come accustomed to. Were they were okay. they uh, were they vaccinated? Uh, did you make them show proof of vaccination before you let them in your car? No, no, I don't think that topic even came up, um, which I'm glad it didn't. Uh, <laughs> oh, hold on, I, I, yeah. I'm still breathing, I'm still breathing. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, three flights. All right, well, anyway, that's the deep loaf joke story. I'm sure there'll be different elements that will come back and I'll, uh, I'll refresh you up. But I actually have to get ready for something. Okay, bro, blessings. All right, all right, blessings. All right, okay, bye -bye. take care, bye. bro. Okay, bye. Thanks, Elliot Blatt. So, yeah, I wonder what's uh, Deep Left Jokel's audience.
like who who like likes this stuff i mean i like his stuff in that it's easy to critique it's like it's someone trying to talk about things that are almost invariably like way beyond him uh, but you know someone trying to hit way out of his league it's like an intellectual climber right someone who's you know trying to take on deep serious topics but doesn't really know much about what he's talking about like the guy's what mid-20s uh, early 20s like who would be turning to him for wisdom about life so I, i'm curious who is who his audience is like who receives a blessing now i think i think he's sometimes very funny he's uh, sometimes very good at uh, mimicking people and he's 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 occasionally got some really smart things to say he does seem to lack like normal social connection bonds to family friends in a particular community where he participates with others I get the feel that he's much more interested in having fans and followers rather than having friends. There's something broken. He's not getting like the, the normal human need to connect, to, to make a family, to you know, build something concrete within a concrete community. Uh, that doesn't seem to be happening for him, and he's compensating for the, for the lack of love in his life by trying to maximize the amount of attention he can get by trying to hit you know, attention-seeking topics that will present him as some you know really deep thinker guru cult leader uh which to my mind don't usually show him off to advantage he would be better off having more guests more, more interactions and you know focusing on the things he does well he, he seems to lack life experience and seems to i mean human connection is frequently a foreign language to me so i kind of recognize in Deep left joke or that the human connection is a completely foreign language for him too. Does it quicker? It's true that in the last few decades, reverse engineering has grown more and more difficult, but it is still a viable practice that gives an advantage. This is enough to say that under current conditions, there will be soon a time when China will catch up with the United States on everything relevant. At least I believe that the process of China crashing and burning has already started. We'll see. The Chinese Communist Party has established the year 2040 as the milestone for reaching a world-class military capability. As a keen observer of the Chinese military, well, I think that they are well on their way and they are progressing to that objective. There are obviously still gaps, and today I want to speak about two gaps that are particularly relevant. One of the gaps is about aircraft engine, I mean high-performance engine for military aircraft. This is an example of a gap that has been closed very quickly by either acquiring technologies from abroad, by reverse engineering, or just indigenous development. The engines produced in China today are absolutely viable engines. There is a new generation in development in the West, but as for today, the Chinese have practically caught up. The most relevant gap, though, is in the semiconductor industry. This is extremely important because nowadays everything contains chips, everything contains semiconductors. China is already well versed in the low end of the market, but is also working feverishly to close the gaps and acquire control of all the other steps of the supply chain that are not currently available internally. This is a market with incredibly high barriers to entry because the semiconductor supply chain is incredibly sophisticated and complicated. In the world market, in each step of the supply chain, okay. hedge fund billionaire Ray Dalio has said that 
China could be the world's else. next great superpower. On this show, Peter Zion has said to me that China is probably on the brink of catastrophe. Where do you see China's economy in the near future? If China is to become that great economic power that everyone for a generation now has been saying is kind of inevitable, it has got so many barriers and so many hurdles it's got to get over between now and then that, frankly, it kind of is looking increasingly unlikely. Um, you know, the big ones you know, are, are you know, unquestionably the demographic cliff that China is facing. So its uh, you know its population is, is aging rapidly. The percentage of uh, retirees is increasing aggressively. Hence, the, you know, the balance between people in the workforce and the people who are retired and relying on people in the work, a smaller number of people in the workforce to, to generate economic growth. That imbalance is going to get bigger and bigger. And then on top of that, the absolute size of China's population is going to start shrinking aggressively. Um, you know, it, it's already shrinking and it's just going to become more and more aggressive and it's declined throughout the rest of, of, of the century. So that's the first big issue. The second issue is, you know, China has already accumulated huge amounts of debt to drive its economic model over the past 20 years. And it's trying to work through that at the moment. Um, and so, you know, that that as well is kind of presenting a headwind to its sort of economic its economic fortunes on top of that you've kind of got the the economic challenges it's facing because the united states is no longer willing to uh sort of perpetuate the the economic relationship which has kind of been foundational to china's economic rise over the past 30 years so all of that stands in the way of, of china sort of the, the inevitability of china something that i think you know was broadly anticipated china would inevitably become a, a larger economy than that of the united states it would inevitably become a great power in its own right and because of those barriers those things are not necessarily going to, to occur i think realistically um you know china's strength has always been premised on its ability to be able to grow quickly um and for its economic growth rate to remain at a, a fairly aggressive level relative to, to other economies now we're at the point now where that no longer looks to be the case. It seems feasible that in the near future, China will be growing over the long term at 2%, 3%, maybe even longer. And that then raises the, maybe even lower, pardon me. So that then raises the question, you know, a China that is growing at, you know, economic, at, at rates which are comparable, maybe marginally faster, maybe marginally slower than major, you know, major developed economies, does that translate, allow it to translate into a greater power status? And I think that is the real challenge. I mean, if it is only growing at 2% or 3%, does that allow it to, you know, challenge the United States for great power status? Does that allow it to, to you know, to achieve that inevitability that we assumed that it, it, it was kind of baked into the cake? And I think increasingly it's looking like, look, you know, it's looking as though that is not going to be the case. If it's not the case, what comes next? Would we see a, a descent for China or, or would it be a maintenance sort of period? I think we're, we're entering into a, peri a period of time, not just for China, but for many countries around the world where it's difficult to say exactly what comes next because we've never really been in this position where populations are, are sort of starting to shrink fairly aggressively. I mean, you know, our entire model of economic growth for however long it's been has been premised on the, on the idea of, of growth. Um, and you know, gr that, that the part and parcel of that is the populations kind of get bigger year on year, even if it's only by marginal amounts. And all of a sudden, China's population is going to decline aggressively. So what does that mean for the political system? What does it mean for its aspirations? What does it mean for the way it engages with its neighbours? And all of that is an open question at the moment. Um, but, you know, in terms of the sort of signals that come out of, of China at the moment, it is certainly aware of its vulnerabilities. It talks a lot about the need to uh, ensure security of supply. It talks about the need to you know, stimulate domestic demand and more equitably distribute wealth domestically because it realizes that its economic model up until this point is not sustainable. There is this real understanding in the system that things have to change. But even though there is that understanding and there's a whole lot of talk about how things have to change, it's difficult to say how that will necessarily connect and interact with the reality of, say, you know... Uh, you know okay, uh, Matthew Cockerell aka the Twitter account and channel History Speaks, went on Richard Spencer's show. So he's appeared on Richard Spencer's show at least once or twice before. He's had uh, quite an interest in Richard Spencer for several years. How do you think this is going to work out for young Matt, who's doing a PhD in history at the London School of Economics? So this appearance occurred June 22nd, 2023. I will just get us started off. I guess I'll call you Matthew or History Speaks is what you would like. Um, 
you are a PhD student at the London School of Economics, and uh, but you're American, as um, we can all tell by your accent. I we got in touch, although I would say vaguely in touch, um, a uh, maybe a year ago or months ago. I can't quite remember. And and um, and, and we've had some you know brief casual conversations or just sharing of things. I, I think we've been on a space together a few times or, or what have you. And you actually invited me to moderate a debate that I saw you yammering away about for months with uh, Mike Enoch. And um, you know, as you can test, attest, I was a bit surprised by the whole thing. And my first instinct was like, well, I'm not sure I want to touch that thing with a 10-foot pole. But then I thought about it. I was like, well, you know, I'll do it. Um, I will actually be fair. I'll hear out Mike and his stuff. I'm not afraid of these ideas. Um, and uh, maybe I would be the best one for it in a way. And then, of course, Mike refuses. So it was very odd. Uh, but what, what do you – tell? before we get – I want to talk about historiography of the Holocaust and Holocaust revisionism. But before we talk about that, just give us your sense of – you know, dealing with Mike, the debate itself, and, and all of the ins and outs of that. Okay, so I, I want to say, because of it's been like some mud slinging the last forever, um, I want to start with a few uh, positive things about, and I don't take anything back I said, he, he dealt with me dishonestly, and people can read about that, I don't find that interesting. I'm going to say some things about Mike's personality, which I was impressed by. So intellectuals, and I will, uh, in, with a bit of cringe, put myself in this category, I think intellectuals sometimes have a tendency to look at people like Mike or Nick Fuentes and say, these people are saying dumb shit, they don't know what they're doing, I could just embarrass them in five minutes. Actually, mm -hmm. like, the, the skill set, like, a shock jock has is something that a lot of intellectuals don't have. And I think Mike mm -hmm. did that in the debate, and I was impressed, and I felt, I felt um, in terms of his just charisma, I, I felt like a tire at the end. Like, wow, he really, he really wore me out. Um, in terms of the actual intellectual content we can get into more, I think he didn't have anything compelling. I mean, he didn't – he was reduced in terms of the big gas chamber at Auschwitz-Birkenau. Uh, he was reduced to arguing that oh, it may have been intended at one point as an explanation for why hydrogen cyanide detectors were installed, why it was called a gas cellar in multiple documents, why there was a preheating system – um, he was he was reduced to saying, oh, maybe the Germans intended it for gassing corpses. So gas chamber for gassing corpses, which I agree on. So I just think, I th yeah, I think that he just, uh, he was definitely the hardest uh, of the verbal debates I did. The other two were kind of cupcakes. He was by far the most charismatic and, and strong, but uh, I just think he had a, a, a argument and I had the facts. Well, so I will praise him maybe a little bit more than you have. So I think that Enoch made a compelling ethical critique, but he didn't make a very compelling historical argument. So what I mean by that is that for, I think, probably like the second half of his opening statement, and, and he would reiterate these themes again and again, he was saying things like, you know, we, we talk about the Holocaust all day long, and we skate over the atomic bombing of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And in fact, there's an upcoming Christopher Nolan film that is going to lionize Oppenheimer and the group that created the atomic bomb. And we don't even mention Dresden. I, I bet most high school graduates in America don't know what that is or was. And the winners write history, and we, we we tend to let ourselves off the hook for these things that are, at the very least, you know, things that you should contemplate morally. Maybe they're morally dubious. Maybe they're justified but still horrifying. I mean, these are things we need to talk about, and yet we talk about the Holocaust all day long as a um, as a pure good and evil uh, situation, and and you know the incredible suffering, et cetera. I think that is actually a very solid point, and I agree with the basic tenor of that. But it's not an historical argument. And so when you say those things, you you kind of lessen the power of that ethical critique by making it just kind of whataboutism. You know, it's like, did this man murder his wife? You know, it's like, well, Stalin murdered millions. It's like, well, okay, did this man murder his wife? You know, we're trying to figure that out. It, it becomes a whataboutism and thus just totally irrelevant. And uh, that, that was my impression. So I, I, I think he did. He's not the first one to make this case, and he's not the best one, but he did make it. And it is something worth talking about, but it's just not a historical argument about the Holocaust. So there is my praise for, for Mike. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. And he had to resort to he had to resort to conspiracy theories with no with no evidence. So, for example, there like um, in, in the case of Belzec, like it, whether a mass grave has been exhumed in a camp or so on, it varies. In the case of Belzec, uh, which was uh, gosh, the third deadliest death camp, I believe. Um, in the case of Belzec, thirty three colossal mass graves have been uncovered by archaeologists in the nineteen in the late nineteen nineties. Uh, they drilled down mm -hmm. and, and found these mass graves. And Mike, he had two tactics on the Kola mass graves. He was trying late nineties. First, he said only fifteen thousand corpses were in them, which was true, but really dishonest because there were fifteen thousand unburned corpses in there. The ash was is what's important, and the ash corresponded to hundreds of thousands of victims. And hmm. Uh, so I thought that was, I thought just focusing on and again I, I want to try to be less in the mud than we have been on this. I thought trying to make the point about the corpses without with avoiding the ash was dishonest, but I was able to tell him on that. And then I, when I made the point that the ash corresponds to hundreds of thousands of corpses, he just said, "Yeah, I don't believe that," and they were right. lying or something, you know. So yeah. Well, let's let's back up here and and let's kind of get out of the nitty gritty. Um, first off, I don't have a whole lot to say about the nitty gritty. I mean, I'm I'm not a historian of the Second World War or anything, um, but I I also think it'd be more useful to listeners to understand kind of like the trajectory of all this stuff and the trajectory of the historiography of the Holocaust, but also the trajectory of um, the historiography of revisionism and the kind of history of that, because it, it certainly didn't begin with, you know, alt-right online podcast or something. Um, it goes back further. So, and then I think we could also talk a little bit about the the, the kind of like uh, myth of the Holocaust, again, not, not in the sense that it didn't happen, but the kind of way that it's used or misused, et cetera. But I want to start with the historiography of it. So, why don't why don't you tell us give us the lay of the land in terms of the public awareness of the Holocaust and the uh, and historians beginning to examine it kind of maybe starting um, after the war I think we'll we'll put the event itself aside just for at least a moment but I want to talk about kind of the re reception or reaction to the event so what when what was the perception of these things as the war was coming to a close and then forward. So, um, yeah, it's a really good question, a very interesting question. So there's been a huge change, massive change in public perception of the Holocaust. Just taking America as one country, uh, Peter Novak has a book called The Holocaust in American Life. And mm -hmm. the fascinating element of this is that right after the war, um, the position of, of the general public was much more indifferent. There was a sense of Nazi barbarism, Nazi thugs, et cetera, that wasn't specifically confined to Jews in a way maybe it is today. And among the Jewish community, there was a sense that something shameful has happened. Rather sad, really. They weren't... Um, Survivors weren't lionized in the way they, they are now. Even there were, Novik mentions this in his book, uh, early efforts to create monuments to sufferings and murders of Jews were actually vetoed by the uh, by organized Jewish community in America, like the ADL, for example. I can't remember the precise city, but they like they said, no, we don't want Monument X to the Nazi uh, Holocaust, to the Holocaust victims. So there was in the 40s and 50s uh, quite a bit of silence, obviously after 45, quite a bit of silence. There was a flurry in Nuremberg of interest. After that, there was quite a bit of Of silence and quite a bit of shame surrounding it. There's enough resistance. Of course, you have you have resistance. You have the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Everyone knows about it. But you also have like the you know uh, cases where there isn't resistance. There's passivity, right? Uh, a, lot, and a lot of them, frankly. Mm -hmm. So um, there's like a sense of shame uh, and uh, a sense of more indifference in culture. And also, I think there's there's a political element to this. So after the cold, after uh, the Cold War emerges, uh, there was this kind of attempt at a quasi rehabilitation of Germany. And you even see this with like Adenauer and uh, early uh, West German politics, sure. and, and also like the Wehrmacht clean hands myth. So the idea that okay, Hitler was bad. The SS were bad. Himmler was bad. These were all thugs and evil. But the common German soldier uh, was was not bad. Had a nobility to him. And and there was this. Uh, and even you see this in films at the time. So there's a there's a film, a very fun film, and a very silly at some level, but also very fun. Uh, I actually recommend it to people. Not do not get your history from it. It's called Battle of the Bulge. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, Heard of it? I've not seen it. Yeah, it's a, it's like a six, early sixties film. But again, the, 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 it's about the uh, you know the Ardennes offensive. But it's the way the Germans are portrayed is not how they would ever be portrayed today, right? There's a nobility and uh, a kind of masculine uh, um, power. 
uh, portrayed in the in the in the um, you know the German Panzer offensive that you wouldn't see today. Um, and so I think that the politics of the situation where vilifying Germany wasn't uh, wasn't really politically expedient expedient once the Cold War breaks up because you want West Germany to have some level of pride and, and dignity, right, and nationalism, civil war against communism, and then also the attitude of the Jewish community, which was to see this event as, as shameful. In terms of historiography, um, the first major work was written by um, can I get the year correct? Um, was written by this is why I'm a PhD student, not just a historian, but it, it was written by um, uh, Gerald Reitlinger in 1953. Yeah, uh, the Final Solution. And um, uh, Reitlinger um, uh, represented a breakthrough, but not so much in the culture. And uh, he, there were a lot of blind spots in his research. He didn't have all the documents we have today. He estimated the death toll at a little under 5 million. He didn't, again, he didn't have all the evidence we have at hand today. But the, the big kind of breakthrough that made an impact on popular culture, um, the filter on popular culture was Raoul Hilberg's uh, The Destruction of the European Jews, published in 1961, which was very controversial. A lot of Jews, so for, Hilberg basically uses like social science methods to try to get how many Jews died, where did they die, when did the policy develop? It's like written in the language of a social science journal, right? And there were people in the Jewish community that thought this is the most vulgar exercise you could imagine. So Hannah Arendt, who, you know, whatever people think of her, she's a pretty brilliant uh, woman, I think it's fair to say. Um, she wrote that Hilberg, she wrote a kind of contradictory comment, which is I found amusing, but also insightful in, from to her perspective. But Hilberg's book is brilliant because it's, it's as a matter of like history and empiricism, it is brilliant. But it's also not unworthy of a singed pig. So the idea of compiling how many died, where did they die, how did they die, when did the policies develop is just how can you speak about this the way you'd speak about some other kind of social science, you know? Uh, yeah. Hilberg's, Hilberg's book made a huge impact in academia and was very controversial at the time, as you can see from Arendt's reaction. Arendt, though, um, and this is, even though I admire Arendt's work, one dishonest thing she did is, uh, for her, uh, I think it became a book, I don't remember, I think it was originally a series of articles, Eichmann in Jerusalem, um, where she's kind of assessing the Nazi regime in the context of this one man's trial, one mediocre man uh, that she sees as like a door-to-door vacuum cleaner who somehow gets involved with this. Uh, evil. Um, she she actually borrows heavily from Hilberg while she's like bashing him. So that's that's interesting. But I would say the big breakthrough was was Raoul Hilberg uh, in 1961. And then uh, just about to put a button on this. In terms of the popular culture, um, it's it, there's at some point a turnaround. So there's at first there's this reaction of, of shame or indifference or very mild interest. And then by the 1970s, by the 1980s, there's this huge uproar in popular culture about the Holocaust. So obviously in Germany, you get interest with the Auschwitz trial in the 68 or so you get this in Germany too. During Germany, again, there wasn't much discussion of this in the 50s and so on, very little. Um, but in the United States and Britain, this quickly starts to enter into popular culture in the in the 70s and 80s, it becomes huge by the 1980s. So in, in, to the point where people are kind of retconning, old veterans are kind of, ret, World War II veterans are kind of retconning their motives for fighting, right? Um, you know, so it, 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 it so essentially, the way we perceive the Holocaust now and its cultural importance to Americans, the Brits, you know, and Germans was not the case uh, immediately after the war. That is interesting. And I don't think terribly surprising. Um, Germany in the 50s had, I mean, you, you had to go from being defeated, being destroyed in many ways, being divided to getting at least the Western half and, and the Eastern half in the other direction on a, on a Cold War footing. And you can't really be demonizing your new ally or vassal. Um, that, that is just simply not going to work. Um, so I, I think a lot of this, I mean, this is the kind of Adenauer era you know, in a nutshell. And uh, so a lot of that's not surprising. I mean, I, we see a lot of that in the, um, you know, embrace of the Confederacy in the United States. There is a certain arrangement or, or deal of, we are going to admire you, claim that your generals were the most brilliant gentlemen to ever walk the face of the earth, you know, under the assumption that we, the Yankees, won and we're not going to do this again. And it's a it's an understandable arrangement. And um, and, and so it, it doesn't terribly surprise me. I mean, even Adenauer himself is kind of interesting. He's, he's what is it, 20 or 20, 30 years older than Hitler? I mean, you're, you're going back to the previous generation um, after this disaster. So, um, uh, but that that is very interesting. Um, in terms of a lot of the things, I mean, uh, there, there are some aspects of the Holocaust which are like clearly fraudulent. These kind of like the soap or the lampshade notions. Was that, were, were these kind of rumors coming out almost immediately or is that something that developed? 
well, the gassing itself? I, was, was it thought of? Mike said this, and he was right on this one. That it, when people hear the word the Holocaust, they do think gassing. When, when did these? When did our kind of public perception kind of solidify? So there were, of course, there were false atrocity claims, but you have to look at. The, so I, I would re I would reject the idea that it's like false aspects of the Holocaust because I think Holocaust means like there's an academic definition of the term. Obviously, it's it's a little confusing, and there's some historians who really dislike the term because of the um the role of it in popular culture. So um that can create some problems. But like soap and so on. You know, it, a lot of these rumors had bases. So, like, uh, it's false as many people believe that Jews were made into soap. That's not true. But um, at the Danzig Anatomical Research Center, um, people were made into soap. Corpses were used to make soap at a, at a very small scale. It wasn't of Jews in concentration camps, but this did happen. So you can see hmm. the source of, of these rumors ruined hearsay. That shrunken heads were real. The reason we know we know the shrunken heads were real uh, because of um, the SS actually investigated this at, at Buchenwald, and they were upset. They're like, "Don't do this. This is not authorized." So the fact that they're condemning it and investigating it shows that it happened. In terms of lampshades, my understanding is that the artifacts uh, presented as human lampshades were tested and found to be animals. Um, but I, I just, you know, I think you're going to have war propaganda in every war, and the question oh, yeah. is what has a strong evidentiary basis. And and this stuff, this stuff does not. I mean, it's it's hearsay. It's it's it's, it's um it's hysteria. It's fear. It's understandable. These people are horrified. And there's there's often kernels of truth to them. In terms of right. the lampshades, though, I would say like against you know I don't want to get into debate nonsense, but like. I mean, they were tested, right? So, like, they were presented as human lampshades. Yeah, that was a mistake. But they were then tested, and they were found to be animals. So, like, if there was some conspiracy, the tests would be falsified or whatever, you know? So, yeah, I mean, there are there are false uh, there are things that people believe that, that historians have found to be false. But one thing I would, I would I would clarify too is it's it's, it's not Holocaust revisionists or deniers who've who've uh, drawn attention to this. Uh, only historians have have debunked these things, you know, by saying the evidence sure. the, under under mainstream historical um, epistemic standards, the evidence for let's say lampshades or soap of Jews is not there. If that makes sense, you know? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I understand. I when you if you were to ask a recent high school graduate who's a bit of a dummy, th these are the things th that he would say. So I, I'm trying to get at like when when public consciousness changed or kind of solidified, um, like, like the word Holocaust, for instance. So that did, was that used by Hilberg or when did that, because that, that is a powerful word. It's a Greek word for burnt offering. So when, when did that kind of come into uh, saliency? Um, well, it certainly wasn't salient after the war. At the time, uh, Hilberg was, was uh, uh, writing. Um, uh, I believe it, it wasn't until the 1960s um, that uh, the term was ever used. And certainly mm -hmm. the, the film that might solidify this as the term for the annihilation of the European Jews was a 1978 made for TV film Holocaust, but with Meryl Streep of people uh, that really, I mean, it was already happening before then, but that film really uh, that vast viewership and a lot of sympathy from Americans for the victims. And that really solidified the cultural role of the Holocaust. Right. It's also the use of the term. It's just, it's just a very important uh, TV show. So um, I couldn't, I couldn't pin the exact uh, uh, date, unfortunately, when the, when the first usages of this were definitely not during the war, definitely not Nuremberg uh, in the 1960s, it started in 1978. It kind of is confirmed this term with the with the film, with the film. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so, and then where where is it going now? Like, uh, obviously, I, I am. I was born in 1978. I was, I guess, the year that film was produced. By coincidence. Um, I I certainly can well remember the 90s. I was in high school. I was, you know, becoming aware of these things and so on. That was um, was Schindler's List came out in what was that around 94, 95 or so thereabouts. Um, and uh, th th that was I would say you know peak Holocaust in terms of the public awareness, the in, prestige Hollywood movies, um, documentaries, teaching in high schools. Um, but my sense, granted, I'm, I'm out of high school now, of course, but my sense is that this is kind of, it's on the wane as time passes. Um, but what, do you, what, is, what is going on, say, over the past 25 years in terms of academia? And then I, I think the public, like public awareness of it is, I, I think, obvious. But what, what is going on in terms of academia? Where Give us a taste of where that is. I would, I mean, I would agree just from reading, reading about the subject that I would guess that when you were when you were a kid in the 90s, 
um, or 80s or whatever. I'm not sure what you mm-hmm. heard. Um, the I would my 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 impression. Actually, I'm almost certain of it. Even though it was in the live in the 80s. Uh, is that this was a much more important issue in popular culture than it is now. I'm not saying yes. it's important now. It still has importance, but I think it is it is waning. In terms of academia, you know, I think a lot of the debates around the Holocaust have kind of been ironed out. I think there are still some interest. Like, a lot of interest, too, is, is the broader question of the dissolution of the European Jewish community, like, through migration, right? So, mm-hmm. um, so, and also, like, kind of fringe questions, such as, was there a plan uh, to extend the exterminations outside of Europe, right? Because Jews are not, like Jews in North Africa, for example, were not systematically killed, right? So the question is, well, they weren't. We know they weren't, but was there a plan to do this? So like debates like this, but um, hmm. I, I would say that uh, research into the big questions, like how many, uh, why did they do it? When were the decisions made? The, the kind of big questions that even a, a layperson who's not a historian or a student of history, but is just interested in the subject would find compelling. I feel like a lot of the research into those has been, uh, you know, you, you never say concluded, but it's becoming more and more pedantic as, as like volumes and volumes of this stuff have compiled, you know, and in terms yeah. of the popular culture. So I think it's on the way and kind of fit in both um, with, for me, what's interesting is the, is the refugee movements. And I actually got interested in this a little bit because of, of the anti-denial stuff, because like, you know, Ryan Falk and so on, people like this uh, were saying, oh, they were all migrated from Europe. And then I got, I got, and obviously like, it's not true, but um, they migrate in Europe in such a way that can account for the population losses in other words. Right. And that's not mm-hmm. true, but, but there are all these interesting stories, which I've been, which I'm researching as part of my, my work doctoral work about these Jews who went to British India, right, uh, in the 1930s, or Jews who went to Hong Kong, like a thousand here, 200 there. It's obviously not the numbers that the deniers are going to, you know, that's going to help the deniers, but it's, these are interesting stories, right, about the destruction of the Jewish community, not just through murder, but also through forced immigration, right? So, yeah, but I feel like the, the big questions have kind of been um, ironed out. Uh, you know, maybe there'll be some startling new interpretation or revision right. of this or that element, but I think that the the core questions are kind of uh, kind of dealt with, yeah. So that, I mean, I, I view this as look. I view I view my work in denial as not strictly speaking um, historiography or me acting as a historian training or whatever the hell I am. But I view it as kind of like I have a skill set and knowledge from history, and I can use that for like a popular discourse, which is which I kind of see anti-denial as if that makes if that makes sense. But but no, I think I think that it's on the way in both. Uh, and I think cultural look as and as a survivors, you know. And, and I have to say, like, I didn't have like a great passion for the subject going in, but I've, I've become I felt like more of a kind of um, how should I say this more of a kind of normie compassion uh, or interest in the survivors, even even stories as uh, as well known in our cultures like Anne Frank and so on, as I've and you know who obviously dies in in, in uh, Belson, but um, I felt more of that as as my work has gone on. But but I think generally speaking, where the way the culture is going and uh, historiography is going, I think this is going to be less salient than it was in the in the seventies, eighties, nineties, where it was huge in all in, in all three domains. You know, I mean, yeah, one, one point I make about historiography, one point I make about the historiography is that the deniers are actually correct about um, or were is that before John Claude Prosak, who was an ex Holocaust denier, he found a lot of documents about Leichen Keller won the big gas chamber in Auschwitz in Auschwitz Birkenau that I cite against Mike like. The, calling it a gassing cellar, or a gassing was cellar, uh, the need for hydrogen cyanide detectors, a gas tight door with a peephole, et cetera. These were found by him. Before that, we really had very little documentary evidence of like the, these buildings being gas chambers, right? It was, but we have that now, you know? So we, it's, it, it corresponds with the testimonial evidence that corresponds with the, um, with the hydrogen cyanide in the ruins of the gas chambers. Uh, so like, I feel like the questions have kind of been asked, answered by historiography, um, if that makes sense. And, and the cultural stuff, I'm repeating myself, but the cultural stuff I think is, is also waning. Yeah, no, I, that definitely makes sense. So what is the history of so-called Holocaust revisionism or so-called Holocaust denial. So presumably that wouldn't, presumably that was a reaction to the historical or historiographic development that we just talked about. But when, when was this becoming a thing, uh, in other words? Yeah, so I think you have to distinguish between two things. So there's, there's obviously popular denial and then there's like intellectuals who engaged uh, in, in denial. Um, like professors, and really very seldom, I don't, there's almost like no historians who were involved in this. I think the reason for that I'll come to, but they were professors and so on. Uh, but uh, Popular denial, you know, was was a thing among Germans, but became much more of a thing as the Holocaust became more salient and more mm-hmm. kind of of a, of a source of shame for the Germans. So in the 1950s, denial was fringe. Um, God, I can't remember the name of this book. Very good book. I'm going to actually look it up. It's not about the Holocaust. It's about Germany after the war. It's a popular history, but it's just so good. So I think your, your viewers and you would like it. 
God damn it, I cannot find this. I'll find it. Um, but this this book I read recently, which for some reason I'm I'm forgetting right now. I'm gonna find it. Um, but mm -hmm. it, it provided a history and showed very little references to the Holocaust as a source of shame or as a source of denying these crimes. Really, just not much discourse. So this as a matter of popular discourse, there was very little Holocaust denial. Um, uh, in, in among Germans or Americans and so on. Um, and there wasn't a major denial work written either until. Um, I believe the first the first book was um, the first like work of Holocaust denial, like like a, a comprehensive work. I may be wrong about this. Was um, the hoax of the twentieth century by a Northwestern University still around actually professor of engineering Arthur Butts. Um, uh, oh no no sorry Paul Rassignier, who who was a French survivor of a camp not a death camp he was held in Buchenwald so like, denier stays a witness or whatever he's really not but he published in 1964 um, uh, the first kind of big denial book. He was I believe like a um, I don't know I, I'm not quite sure what his background was but. Anyway, he um, he wrote uh, anti denial. He wrote the denial work, and Arthur Butts wrote it. And but the interesting thing is, both intellectually and popularly, denial really explodes at the same time. The Holocaust becomes a much bigger, um, a much bigger um, source of, of of pop culture significance. So denial was not really a thing. You had like people like Harry Elmer Barnes, who was you know very anti-war and kind of I think was sympathetic to denial as a means of, of deprecating the, the American war effort more than as like neo-Nazism or whatever. Um, mm -hmm. He doesn't. He didn't really um, comprehensively write in this. He just kind of dog whistled about how he didn't believe it. He was a historian at Columbia University. But the, the first two, I'd say, uh, uh, intellectuals who wrote about this were Rossignier and uh, Butts. And then you had the foundation of the Institute for Historical Review in 1978. So what's interesting is denial, both at a popular level and at an um, intellectual level, if you will, uh, came about um, um, decades after the war. It wasn't really a thing right after the war. Just as Holocaust, just as like the Holocaust. Just as discussing was, the Holocaust wasn't a thing. Right. I mean, it was, it was yeah. a, to be clear, it was like seen as an uncontroversial statement of fact among like normies that are informed that Hitler annihilated the Jews. That was just seen as like, yeah, he did that. But it wasn't like. Damn, doggone it. Dad gummit. I, I I blew it again. Man. <laughs> wow. That's embarrassing. I, I was I was just dropping just you know brilliant stuff on you. All right. Your brain has tricked you into thinking that everything is worse. Great op-ed from the New York Times, June 20th of this year. So why does this happen? Number one, we predominantly encounter and pay attention to negative information about other people. So if you know that I once you know, wrote a book on the history of sex in film, or I once directed a porn movie, like that was so in all likelihood creep you out, freak you out, repel you, that anything else about me, you don't care to know. Right? So other people's mischief and misdeeds make the news and it dominates our conversations. Then we have biased memory. So the negativity of negative information tends to fade faster than the positivity of positive information. So getting dumped hurts in the moment, but as you rationalize, as you reframe, and as you distance yourself from the memory, the sting fades. So the memory of meeting your current spouse, on the other hand, probably still makes you smile. So you put these two cognitive mechanisms together, you can create an illusion of decline. So thanks to our biased exposure, things look bad every day. But thanks to our biased memory, when you think back to yesterday, you don't remember things being so bad. So when you're standing in a wasteland, you likely will remember a wonderland. And so the only reasonable conclusion is that things have gotten worse. Now, people tend to exempt their own social circles from decline. People think that the people they know are nicer than ever. So the people we know, we primarily encounter in positive interactions. And then we screen everything else that we learn about them that's not nice through our filter that these people are nice and tend to dismiss negative information about people that we love. So people also believe that moral decline begins only after they arrive on Earth. So people tend to see humanity as stably virtuous in the decades before their birth. So you get these cognitive biases working in tandem, and so our susceptibility to myths of golden ages make more sense. 
right? We always feel like we're living in dark times, and our biased memory means we always think the past was brighter. So we are susceptible to the promises of aspiring autocrats who claim they can return us to a golden age that exists in the only place a golden age has ever existed, our imaginations. Right, pretty good op-ed there from the New York Times. Sorry for the minute of dead air. Like the Holocaust wasn't this big thing used to, to draw broad political conclusions, if that makes sense, or to draw even derogatory conclusions about the average German. Um, it, this, this really changes in the 70s, 80s, and, uh, and 90s. Um, by the way, these days, interesting, so the IHR is, is founded in 1978. These days, the IHR has basically given up on Holocaust now. I don't know if you found this, but the director, Mark Weber, has admitted to, um, he basically has admitted to two-thirds of the Holocaust, and the last third Auschwitz, he's like, um, he's like, not sure, you know, so he, the main body to fight, to, to advocate for Holocaust now is kind of thrown in the towel. And I actually have some respect for Weber because like, I mean, you don't really have anywhere else to go, but you're like, and he has a master's in history. So he, he, he looks at the evidence. He's like, you know, I have to say the convergence of evidence is for, in favor of the mainstream on the mass shootings element and, and the, at least the Reinhardt camps gassing element. Like I mentioned the mass graves at Belzec, you know, I mean, he's not going to say that's a conspiracy. Right. Um, right. So, uh, yeah. Um, but I would say today denial is dying. So here is dying and thriving. So it's thriving on the far right. People like Mike and so on, but it used to be that there were intellectuals involved in this, not historians. I think the reasons historians were involved in it, but they were they were like professors and so on. And uh, like uh, guy who's like a Forasan, he's a professor of French literature. So you have had intellectuals involved in this. Yeah. But I just think that I think and David Irving was involved in this, right? But I just think that the defeats deniers have had really um, in open debate, as you as it were, and in, in court as well, when David Irving sued Deborah Lipstadt, have been sufficiently devastating that I just think intellectuals have kind of say, look at this, said like you know the case is, is not there, you know? Right. Um, but it probably flourishes with you know moon landing stuff and vaccine stuff and so on on the online far right. It's it's a it, it seems to just go. I mean I, I I don't I don't know if QAnon mentioned this nonsense, but like it just it, it would seem to go along with that in, in an almost like debased form, you know, <laughs> as opposed to someone who was you know acting in good faith might might have had his biases of course, but was genuinely trying to get at the truth. Now if it exists at all, it exists alongside you know vaccines, give you AIDS or whatever. Yeah, I mean, I, I look, I debated one of the higher IQ deniers in um, Thomas Dalton, which is available on the Committee for Open Debate and the Holocaust website. He's really a dying breed. I mean, yeah. people who can write, who can like, who can who can at least put on the form of academic discourse. But there used to be deniers like that, but I just think they lost their argument. And there are a few now, like, uh, now denial isn't going to die, but I think it's going to become more and more vulgar. So for example, the guy debated Dalton, he'd never make this retarded argument you see on the internet, like, oh, the swimming pool or the soccer team. So the soccer team are British right. POWs, nothing to do with Jews. The swimming pool is in Auschwitz one, where there was no extermination by 1944 when it's constructed and Jews were killed in Birkenau, nothing to do with Jews. So it's just like, you're going to get memes like the swimming pool and the soccer team. And I think you're going to get less of like the Mark Weber IHR stuff from Gates Pass, if that makes sense. Right. Who funded IHR in the 70s? Oh, I'm actually not sure. They were, it was involved with Willis. So like they were trying Willis to, to watch. Yeah, yeah. So, but here's the thing. It's pre-internet, right? So um, they had some smart people associated with it, even they, and they had like extremists like Carto. So they tried to, when they thought they could win the argument, they kind of tried to, and they thought they had some winning arguments, which they obviously don't anymore. They're not engaged in it. Um, they tried to kind of sanitize anti-Semitism because obviously if you have an empirically compelling argument that, you know, there were no gas chambers or whatever, or that they have, the, the, um, you know, the, there's some explanation for how these people disappeared other than killing or whatever the case is, or that there's some evidence for a hoax or whatever. Um, I mean, they never made the hoax claim. I kind of trapped Mike on that, but the, the smart people like said it, well, it wasn't because they know they, they're smart enough. No, you need to, if you're going to make a positive claim, you need evidence. You can't just say hoax and then give right. no evidence that the Soviets or the British or the Americans did this. But uh, so, but to say it's a misunderstanding is also odd. I mean, that relieves you of a burden of proof. Dalton did this. He did. He said it's not a hoax, right? But it, but to say it's a mis even if it was biased, like say there was extreme bias, but no attempt to frame them. It just is very strange to me that they would all confess the same thing if there's no conspiracy. But regardless, um, the IHR was funded by extremists and tried to kind of disassociate themselves from them when they thought in the 1990s that they had a winning argument and they want they actually wanted to reach the public and professors. So uh, they tried to kind of sanitize themselves a bit. Um, uh, but, you know, uh, I don't think they're very interested in doing that at this point because they've given up on Holocaust denial, you know? Yeah, I, I can remember even a kid. I don't know if I've seen clips of this or if I might have even watched it. 
when I was a young man in the 90s, but like David Cole, who is currently a uh, op-ed writer at Talkies Magazine and uh, Weber, they, they went on like Oprah or Montel, maybe not Oprah, but Montel Williams or it one of the <laughs> lower grade Donahue. Oprahs. Donahue, was, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. So, sorry, I'll finish Richard. Go ahead. Well, that, that's it. They, they were absolutely trying to reach the mainstream, maybe successfully doing it. Uh, they definitely were not presenting themselves as far right in doing that. They were presenting themselves as, you know, we've got this, you know, good news we need to bring to the world, basically. Um, and so I, I do think that, you know, again, we're just in a very different place right now um, with the internet, where, I mean, this is something I've talked a lot about it, where there's, there's no mainstream. So, I mean, Donahue wasn't. <laughs> The New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, but he was reaching average people, and he was a source of authority. I mean, Donahue was actually a, an, an interesting man, um, the very least in comparison with his colleagues today. Um, he was fired for opposing the Iraq War from NBC, by the way. But anyway, uh, they they were they were reaching the mainstream. I think where we are now is that there's no mainstream. Like, there's no the New York Times is all lies in the mind of uh, you know your average Trump supporter, and many people, Trump supporter or no. Uh, they are getting their information from a Facebook group or from a court server or, or something like that. They have this, we're in this kind of place where technological society, as it functions, has broken down and there's no mainstream. There's no, there's increasingly less of a shared culture. And I think it's both hyper-polarized to be sure, but it, it's also kind of fragmented where, you know, I, I'm, I don't want to go too much on this because I, I want to focus on um, your stuff, but, you know, there's no band that represents Americans, or at least young Americans, that they all agree with is, is like, this is, they speak for our generation. There were many bands like that. At this point, music is utterly fragmented and people are in their own little echo chambers. And I think they are as well in terms of mainstream discourse. Like there's no way to even reach them. And, you know, uh, and so the degree to which discussion about this is going to take place, I think it is going to be, it's going to take place through the, you know, the, the mouth of um, someone like Mike Enoch, maybe at best. And at worst, it will take place in this totally deranged and conspiratorial atmosphere. Yeah, I agree with that. So first I'll make the point about Cole. So Cole has changed uh, his views, not entirely he's changed his views. So Cole has conceded almost all the Holocaust, but not quite all of it. I'll, I'll just explain this. I think I, I've talked to David a number of times and I like David, by the way, quite a bit. Um, <laughs> but I'll, so I think I can characterize his views and, and, and I'll post it and, and, and tag him. Just, and he can he hates me for some reason. Oh, I've really? never met him. It's very odd. Yeah, he hates me for some reason. I, he's always like... Uh, variously taken pisses on me on Twitter. Although I think we still follow each other or something like that. I just, I just find it. David is the sweetest guy in the world. I, I wonder, maybe like he's, he's, he doesn't like the 2016. I mean, I wouldn't have liked the 2015, 2016, like swaggering. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. I I mean, I told you, like, I told you, for example, I told you, for example, like I was surprised by how intelligent I consider you to be because like, I guess maybe this is my liberal mind, but the, the little pieces I saw in 2015, 2016, I'm like, this guy's a meathead frat boy, uh -huh. you know? Yeah. yeah. And then I'm like, no, he's actually an interesting guy. But um, anyway, uh, you know, but for David though, you guys, I guess you guys need to make up, but in terms of David, <laughs> <It's, you> know, <laughs> if we do, if we don't, it, it's yeah, no, it doesn't uh, matter. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't matter. But more I, interesting I, I is found it curious though. I was like, oh, this 90s Holocaust revisionist. Yeah. Yeah. But make it that way you will. <laughs> more interesting. So David is actually a good example though, of how the smarter ones have kind of run away from their views. So let me, let me go through a couple things. Um, David was right about a couple of things. So one thing David was right about, for example, is there was, there's one building at my dining that was identified by the museum and some books as a homicidal gas chamber that it makes absolutely no sense. Like the door literally opens on the inside, for example. Mm -hmm. And 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 so it, my guy did have gas chambers, but this particular building should not have been labeled a gas chamber. And Cole was correct about that. Um, but uh, for the most part, Cole was wrong. And Cole um, and Cole has been running away from not, not running away from because he's been honest about it, but he's been backing away from uh, the views he took in the nineties without entirely giving up on them. So I mentioned in the Enoch debate and involved in the debate, I'll just say here there are like three big stages of Holocaust mass shootings. 
killing in the Reinhardt camps and killing in Auschwitz. So Cole completely concedes the first two. He's just totally, he's not, he doesn't say Belzic massacre. Like basically when someone like Cole sees like 33 colossal massacres filled with ash, he's like, okay, let's camp. Let's move on. He's not going to say like conspiracy or why they pave over it or Yeah. I mean, okay, that's weird. But the one thing Cole will not let go of is so like, remember in the Auschwitz debate with Enoch, we were focusing on the big gas chamber, Nation Keller 1, Cook Seller 1. He, Cole will not let go. And I think he's wrong on the evidence and, and but he will not let go of the fact that that was not a homicide gas chamber. And that is the one thing he continues to, he even says Auschwitz there was gassings, but in the bunkers, not the big gas chamber. Um, so Cole. Uh, is still a revisionist in this regard. He won't let go of that, but he's he's much more in agreement with the mainstream than he is with like Mike Enoch. Um, and I think I don't want to psychologize him. I will say I'll, I'll say this instead of psychologizing. If I were in Cole's position, I would find it very difficult to say, okay, Lyshen Keller one was a gas chamber. I'm, I was wrong about everything. So I would, everything other than okay, one building may have been misidentified. My so general question: How serious are Holocaust deniers? And I would say, like most strongly identifying members of an in-group, they are very serious about maintaining their status, usually within their in-group. And by denying widely documented historical events like the, the Holocaust, they are symbolically burning their bridges to polite society to show how committed they are to their particular cause. So, yeah, I think uh, Mike Enoch and uh, David Cole and uh, Mark Weber, right, I believe they get most of their status from their in-group. And so most people strongly identifying with their in-group, right, they experience the the binding nature of ties and the blinding nature of ties so they care most of all about what their particular in-group thinks of them and so strongly identifying orthodox jews strongly identifying uh, christians or muslims or or gays or, or blacks all right they all experience similar similar forces that uh, uh, propel you to emphasize the victimhood of your in-group and to have, have fear and to spread, you know, hatred of outgroups. That's pretty much how social dynamics work. Whether you're just arbitrarily assigned to group A or to group B, you'll start thinking about ways that group A, whatever group you're assigned to, is superior. I was wrong about every substantive claim. And I, I suffered so much for something I was completely wrong about. That's difficult for human... Yeah, aren't there some who are just merely trolling? Yeah, there are some who are merely trolling. There are some who just deliberately put out a, a trolling message, say, for people with 100 IQs but they talk about the matter very differently when they're pe with the people who have IQs over 120. I mean, we're vain. We have confirmation. Sure. So I'm look cool. So I'm not saying that's his motive. I'm saying if I were him, I could picture myself struggling with that. Um, yeah. but, he, but I think he's, he's representative of the fact that, I mean, the guy hasn't like graduated college, but he's smart. I, I care about people, people are smart. Credentials he's are definitely cool. smart. I mean, yeah. yeah. Credentials are cool and they help us figure out stuff, but like Cole smart. I don't care that you didn't graduate college. David he's Irving. so smart that he yeah. steals my takes. <laughs> I've noticed this. I, 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 okay, that's a, a little jab there. But yes, I've noticed that. I was like, well, you, you seem to hate me, and yet I'll say something, and it will appear in your column uh, three months later. That's a curious matter. Anyway, I'll leave, <laughs> I'll leave it at my that. My point about David, I, I think, care. would be, my point about David would be, he's a good example of how the, the smarter deniers have kind of, have looked at the evidence and said, well, you know, the, this, this claim isn't really justified. That claim isn't really justified. I will say this, too, about deniers. So, like, for example, I'm going to read a quote that was published in a book, Why the Heavens Not Darkened, in the late 1980s, which was two at the time, by a Princeton mm -hmm. historian. Sources for the studies of the gas chambers are at once rare and unreliable. So that's what he said. That was true at the time. It isn't true anymore. And the reason <laughs> it isn't true anymore is because primarily of a historian, Jean-Claude Prosac. Uh, who found the construction documents. He found what he called the criminal traces, references to Lyshen Keller, one we talk about as a gassing seller, references to it as a, you know, gassing basement, right? References to the hydrogen cyanide detectors. Basically, documents which I used against Mike, which I think discredit the claim that it was a more of a preheating system. You want to cook the corpses, apparently, right? So, um, so I guess the one, the, one not, the one thing you have to admit to deniers, which I think people won't, don't want to, but I think it's true, is that they did, through their provocations, they spurred more research, which led their claims to be discredited. But mm -hmm. probably nobody would have uh, researched it if, if, if they hadn't done it. Here's a interesting quote on Press book. So Press book, Technique and Press was an ex-denier who basically went to the archives in Auschwitz and found these criminal traces. Right? He found the evidence that these, these buildings were not morgues, they were gas chambers. So uh, this was a review of Press book. 
Asaka is a former revisionist. He's convinced the gas chambers did actually exist, and he's not discovering anything new in this. Absolutely nothing. He opens the door of the gas chamber. Everyone knew they were already there. So his work is kind of polarizing, but it's in, it's interesting. So like, because mainstream people, some of them, okay, we didn't have documents showing that this building was a gas chamber. These documents show that it couldn't have been Morgan. It must be a gas chamber. But, you know, um, so what? Who cares? We all knew they were there already, right? But so whatever one thinks of this research, though, it was definitely prompted by deniers to some extent. And it was even carried out by an ex-denier. This guy was a denier, and he changed his mind after going to the construction methods. There also is a, there, there are more documents that people haven't read because historians just aren't primarily concerned about this. So like, for example, a, a document was found by a Holocaust denier of all people. I don't remember how many years ago. It was 10, 15 years ago, which, which was about a gas-tight door for a delousing chamber, like for non-homicidal mm -hmm. gassing of clothes. And the document said, this, um, this door, this gas-tight door needs to be made exactly like the gas-tight door used for special treatment, zone de behandling of the Jews. And other documents, special treatment is defined as execution. So like, it's not hmm. me making this up. Like, Himmler one science that says, okay, this special treatment carried out by my hanging, this special treatment by shooting. So there's a document hmm. that says the gas-tight door for the delousing chamber, non-homicidal gas chamber, should be exactly like that for the gas chamber used for the execution of the Jews. I mean, I don't know what to tell you at that point. Yeah, you know, or if, I mean, the, the best thing that Tanya could say is, oh, special treatment means something different in this context. It, he admits it's a covert killing because he's one of the few, very few revisionists left who's like high IQ, let's say, and works on like archives. It just is like, bro, okay, you can find some case where some German says special treatment doesn't mean killing, but you admit it was a covert for execution. What else could that mean? Special treatment of the Jews with a gas tight door, like something right. the, the show, you know? Yes. Uh, let me uh, let me talk a, a little bit about where I think this is going, and and you can respond. Um, as I was saying before, I don't think we can underestimate the degree to which many normies out there, that is mainstream people, average Americans, have become largely deranged in their views. Um, now, there's probably a lot of causes, causes of that in you know, economic distress and just the, uh, this kind of malaise or anxiety, anxious malaise that we all kind of feel about the state of the world in America, all of that stuff. Um, but a lot of it is caused through the internet and, and through what I was speaking of before, this, this breakdown of technological society, where the, the, the apparatuses of you know, the nightly news, your local paper, the big national papers, um, just the way that life was, for better and for worse, organized so that society could function and the people could have a sense of up and down and right and left and good and bad and all that kind of stuff. These are breaking down and people are partic probably particularly conservatives, but I, I, I would say it's across the board. Are, are entering these deranged places. I imagine that Holocaust denial is, it's not a major force, but I wouldn't be surprised if it cropped up in a lot of these forums, the QAnon type forums places. And I'm not trying to defend them, but I think in a weird way, they might not even do it for anti-Semitic or pro-Nazi reasons. It's just one more conspiracy to, to throw into the bouquet of, you know, the moon landing, you know, JFK and all that kind of stuff. Um, I, I think it will still persist uh, in, with, with people like Enoch, I, I think what he is trying to do, um, and I and I more or less again, I haven't, you know, I'll, I take your word for it. I agree. I've seen this myself. You know a lot more of it than I do. I think in terms of higher IQ people or people who want to use some sort of historical method, I think it is a a slowly dying field, and it will probably not not be with us, um, say, twenty five years from now. But but I think it will be with us in an intense way in the these deranged forums and with people like Enoch. What Enoch would do, and I think he would actually agree with me if I if I talked with him about it. Is that they they are they view themselves as oppositional to Jewish power, so that's Hollywood, Wall Street, etc. This is from their mind this torpedo launched at the USS Israel. Uh, if you can debunk the Holocaust, they're gonna wither away or turn turn, turn to water like the Wicked Witch or something. You know, it's it, they feel that this is such a powerful weapon they can use against their enemies, and that is why they do it. And I think from my standpoint, I think it's a very, like, putting aside truth and, and, and false claims, I think it's just a bad idea to focus on this or put your eggs in that basket. Like, you know, 
I'm gonna, you know, the, I, the, the fact that I'm revisionist, something's, uh, something about what I say politically and socially and intellectually is at stake in this. But they will do that. And they have done that. I don't think, I'm not misrepresenting them. They, the, the Holocaust denial isn't just like a curious, you know, hang up. Like I, I could have an argument about, you know, who's better, Verdi or Wagner or whatever. It, it, whether I win that debate doesn't matter. Not, not, you know, it, it's a, a matter of taste on some level. For them, it's not a matter of taste. I think they have their eggs in this basket in a very curious way. And I, I also think they, they feel that it's a silver bullet, if you will, or, or this just huge ammunition that if they can win on this field, and they might very well win the argument, quote unquote, in the sense of influencing, you know, the far right on podcasts and on, on 4chan, et cetera. They, they might very well win the argument on those uh, forums that that will lead them to political power. So it's a means towards an end. I, that's how I think they think about this question. Um, do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, look, my activities have had political uh, salient. So a lot of Jews end up following me on Twitter because they see they see my activities as fighting anti-Semitism. And I'm I'm happy to do that. I don't like, obviously, I don't like anti-Semitism. But my, actually, my biggest, the, the biggest political motivation wasn't that. It was um, trying to deprogram these people on the far right, who I think, you know, and this is controversial, obviously, for somebody who's in a PhD program who wants to be an academic and be a historian. Mm -hmm. But like, I think these white boys, as it were, have uh, some grievances with society that are legitimate, and they're being seduced by race hatred and kind of crazy ideology. So I want to reach them and deprogram them. I think Look, I think I've been effective at that at a very small scale. So in fact, I know I've been effective at that. In fact, during our debate, TRS had to like delete comments from like, a very small minority. I'm not the vast majority of these people thought Ian right? But there were some who thought, and even in the Odyssey channel, you see this, there's some who thought I was more compelling. And that's kind of my goal in this. Try to deprogram yeah. 2%, 3%. Because like you're never going with confirmation bias as it is, like if Trump debated Biden, you'd never get more than 10% Democrats saying Trump won or 10% right. Republicans saying Biden won. But my goal has been to deprogram a small number of these people, maybe the cleverer ones or the ones who may be a little on the fence. And I think I've been successful, although it's exhausting because it's a very toxic place. But but no, I mean, the, the, if I have a political motive in this, uh, it's been to uh, it's concerned about the far right. I don't think I, I, I'm concerned about these people. I think they're a danger to themselves, to others. And I, I think they have legitimate concerns, too. So I think the problem will continue. Right. So I guess partly I'm, I'm with the left on their analysis. That's partly I'm on the right. So the right I'm on the right in the sense I think they have legitimate grievances. Right. I'm, I'm on the left in the sense I think that, no, it isn't just Fed posting. It's not trying to, by the way, write off like the Nazis is Fed posting like these statements about we're killing 1.2 million. Oh, th this or, bothered me. I mentioned this on Tuesday when we talked about this. Mike Enoch struck me as it's, it's as if he believed the Nazis were TRS members or something. And so it was all about Fed posting or letting off steam or something. You know, it's like, oh, you can't take that seriously. He's just being edgy or whatever. Too. Right. I mean, the, the point I made to this, though, is that, okay, Mike, you're putting your interpret. And I think I made a very good response. There's some things where I'm like, oh, God, why didn't I say this? Of course, you get that in verbal debates. But this one, yeah. I made a response. Like, Mike, you're putting your interpretation over Horty, Hitler's own ally, who was distressed. He, he was an anti Semite. He was an Axis. But he was distressed by the fact, I think morally too, by the fact that mm -hmm. Hitler, in his words, as he said to his, this isn't after the war and some trial, this is 1944, as Hitler's ally, he says to the Crown Council, Hitler, Hitler reproaches me because I won't allow the Hungarian Jews to be turned over and massacred. It's kind of a tragic thing that he's put in his lot with this person who now wants him to massacre some of his... Oh, wait, 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 where's that coming from? Oh, stop that. Stop that. Okay. Look, Holocaust, denial, very bad. There's really... Anything worse, one thing worse than, than Holocaust denial, and that's denying the erotic allure of uh, black women. I mean, it, it's like another Holocaust. It, it's so bad. Luckily, at HoochieCon, black women's sexual power and agency take center stage. And I say, amen, about time. Right, taking in the images of black women that adorn the gallery space at HoochieCon, it is clear that the creator and curator, Zorin Truly, 37, has a major soft spot for Hoochie Mamas. Fly black women who harness the power of their sexuality and creative expression as they see fit. 
I mean, we've got artful, multi-layered updos reaching for the heavens, big smiles sparkling with gold embellishments, vibrant acrylic nails as imaginative as they are long, nostalgic portraits of friends turning out before the social media boom. I mean, these women may not have an abundance of money. They may not be you know, conventionally uh, considered erotic, but it's about time that, that our society atones for the sins of the past and starts you know, mandating that every attractive you know, white man you know, pair up at least for a year with the hoochie mama. I mean, I think this would be the most meaningful act of, of reparations that we could do. I mean, what a rich legacy. I mean, think about the moody bisexual lighting that promises a good time. Think about the joy of discovering and embracing your authentic self and sexual agency. I mean, there was a something for everyone at this event. The lovely Denny Daniels here posing for a portrait at uh, Huchikan. And just some amazing art on display. I mean, it's time to give respect and reverence to women who pioneered popular culture for so long without reaping any of the benefits or even receiving credit. Not only did they pioneer it, they also had to suffer for it, had to suffer to wear the hair they wanted to hair, had to suffer for wearing the nails they wanted to wear, the gold teeth, and to be sexually liberated. They had to suffer to shine. Why did they ever take it away? I mean, at Huchikan, you get to be yourself no matter how other people judge you. At Huchikan, you get to be happy with how you look. You get to be happy with how you feel, how you dress, the choices that you make. And you can be fully yourself no matter what that looks like. And you can still be worthy of good things. Just uh, words to live by. His Ed Mercadal. Well, there was more than just Jews just that, that were just, there, right? So why hydrogen cyanide detectors in air raid shelter? Why? Well, you because uh, well, according to Prasak, the explanation for this is that they might have been at at one point having a delousing chamber there to delouse dead bodies. Jews at, at Mercadal. Well, there. Okay, this is history speaks with Mike. Bureaucratic. Here. Your people were approving this. They were approving. Right, and kids. so were so yours. So were the British. Society on. So we're so we're making it sadistic. Saying, oh, these are all the children we've killed. It was clearly bureaucratic. Your people were approving this. They were proving right, and kids. so were so yours. So were the British. Society. Okay, that the vast majority of Jews in the occupied Soviet Union they have shot. Is that wrong? Are they wrong or wrong? I don't know. I'd have to look at it. Okay, I sent that to you in 2021. So good job. Look wrong when they. Matthew, there is a positive Matthew, evidence they want to frame Matthew. the Germans. One whistleblower, one document. Give me one. Why is that necessary? Why the, one document? All the fake documents. All of the British and Americans. Matthew, there is a positive Matthew. evidence they want to frame. Why does Belzic have 33 colossal mass graves with ash correspondence? I don't agree with that characterization. So you, you, it's just Nazi napkin math. The, the archaeologists I mean, You're are saying there's evidence of 15,000 people. The claim is 600,000. Mike, the 15,000, you said this in your podcast, 15,000 is unburnt people. There's right. Well, unburnt. Well, well there's, okay, ash, so then. The ash corresponds, the concentration of ash, ash in the colossal mass graves corresponds to hundreds of thousands of corpses. Yeah, I don't buy that. Discredits. Yeah, you just don't buy it because you're a conspiracy nut. 
I mean, why do they? Why did they pave the lying. whole thing over? Why are the archaeologists wrong? Why, are they why did they wrong? pave the whole? Because they had a, they had a motive to be. Okay, why so did they pave the whole thing over with rebar and like stone and that crap? And in fact, Bruce, why does you those are colossal cave-like mass graves, and they indeed did accommodate hundreds of thousands of victims to who were great except were emaciated children. So this this completely the Cola study just completely destroys you guys. The ash concentration alone corresponds to hundreds of thousands of victims. You can work out the mathematics as the archaeologists have done. So it's just it's just this is completely devastating your theory. Uh, I mean the vast majority of pe of people in the sense of ashes as well are still in the ground there. So okay, it sure destroys thing. you. Yeah. Spatial Use your stupid fucking... There's a hoax to frame the Germans. You have none. You've got nothing. Why the like... hell would they say it? Thank you. Those are colossal cave-like mass graves, and they indeed did accommodate hundreds of thousands of victims to who were great extent were emaciated children. So this this completely... The COLA study just completely... Uh, and the Americans framed them, too. You did in this debate. Is there any positive evidence for that? Positive evidence. One witness. Positive evidence is that the, the positive evidence is that the claims they make are false. So you have no positive evidence for the, the claims they make are false. I don't need the captain is positive. Look, evidence the, a pile of bullshit that is collected by a government is no, evidence. The government is, is fucking lying. Like, what are you talking about? Positive evidence is the shit that doesn't that's not true. That they have. You have no evidence for your hoax theory. Zero. No positive evidence. Just turn off my mic. What is your positive Matthew, evidence for the Matthew. British? The positive evidence is the is the is Sorry, the, my camera the, the piles and piles of bullshit and and crap mm -hmm. that they've That's collected to make no no, no it's not negative no it is absolutely positive evidence because these allegations exist they're not true and they're repeated that is the hoax you have no positive evidence is there you have one witness it's very that evidence. is is there that one is, witness what, no 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 because I don't need to use from your the stupid the Americans fucking saying there's a hoax to frame the Germans you have none. You've got nothing. Why the like. hell would they say it? Where is the city of the millions of Jews who disappeared in the camp? Russia, Soviet Union. Okay, so you believe uh, basically a population of Jews akin to a nation? No. The Nazis I don't know had where, but... data in how many Jews were deported and how many Jews were in the camp system by mid 1940s. Right, and there's no evidence there's that those people were millions. You have no okay. explanation for it. None. No alibi. Well, then those people were deported. Where? To the they east. weren't in the camps, right? They were they were deported to the east. Okay, where in the? That's east? what they so said. I mean, that's so what the Nazis believe, said. You believe these millions of people were, went to some civilization or city that that supposedly existed, which you have no evidence. Well, I don't necessarily know if there's accurate document that they would that they actually aren't alive. You just said they were sent to the east, out of the camp system. Where where is the city of the millions of Jews who disappeared in the camp? Russia, Soviet Union. Okay, so you believe uh, basically a population of Jews akin to a nation? No, suppose it's. We go with your ridiculous assumption that it's Who no evidence. Why did he say three million Jews have been killed by Nazis? Is he lying? Does he want to hurt the Palestinians by justifying the Holocaust? Why did he say? It? Why did he write this? Was he coerced by the Arab publisher? Why did Al Husseini say this? I don't care. Who knows? Maybe he liked the idea. Maybe he thought it was cool to kill Jews. I don't know. So he just made. But it up. I do know that it's hearsay. He made it up. I don't know if he made it up. Maybe he heard it. Maybe he misheard. Maybe he made an error. There's okay, lots I of think, explanations. I think it's a really weak. The question, question is this, Matthew. Why the question, I, I don't care say, what you think. The question is this. Did he say they were gassed? Did he say Himmler said they were gassed? Why did he say it? Suppose it's we go with your ridiculous assumption that it's Who no cares? evidence. Why did he say three million Jews have been killed by Who Nazis? Is he lying? Does he want to hurt the Palestinians by justifying the Holocaust? Why did he say it? Why did he write this? Was he coerced by the Arab publisher? Why did Al Husseini say this? I don't care. Who knows? Maybe he liked the idea. Maybe he thought it was cool to kill Jews. I don't know. 
he just made but it. But I do know that it's hearsay. He made it up. This is the Einstein's Scoop and Report show. How many shot? I'm not sure. I'd have to look at it. Those alone are over a million. I sent them to you. you okay, fair the, enough. Over a million? Okay, right. so over a million Jews shot. All right. How many of them, how many of them were, you know, partisan? This is the Einstein's Scoop and Report show. How many in, I, I'm just in my speech 10 seconds ago and now that I, I just said. Okay. Nothing that I posted had anything to do with the Holocaust. In, I, I'm just in my speech 10 seconds ago and now that I, I just said. And I sent Mike in the link I sent Mike. That's what his, his testimony was. So the testimony corroborates the contemporary. Let's also look at the um, documentary evidence. So a two September 1942 edition of Johann Kramer's diary described Auschwitz as an extermination camp and described that he witnessed a special action. So that was his diary. And Mike smiling, he later testified and he later tested Kramer later testified after the war that he was referring to gassing of Jews. And I showed this in a document I sent Mike in the link I sent Mike. That's what his his testimony was. So the testimony corroborates the contemporary. Let's also look at Okay, let's get some something positive here as we start winding up the show for today. Herb, and I'm an alcoholic. This is uh, Herb talking about how he used Step 7 to overcome adultery. Happy to be here and chat about Step 7. It's interesting listening to Tom, and I made a connection tonight, actually, and he, he read something I've read many times, and I've heard being read many times, and um, he made a very big point of talking about uh, humility. Uh, and it's inter in the letter on emotional sobriety. And it's interesting to me that the step seven begins with humbly. Uh, and step seven in the 12 and 12 is a wonderful treatise on humility. And Alan made the point. So what, what is humility? And the best explanation that I've heard is that humility is accepting reality. So reality might mean in certain situations you need to step up and lead. Reality might mean you need to stop live streaming and start deep cleaning the, the carpet in your room. Uh, reality might mean you can do a trade so someone else deep cleans your carpets while you you know read a book and give them money or reality might mean that you need to just take orders you know wear a white shirt wear a suit and, and tie and do what you're told for 40 hours a week right humility means living in reality acceding to reality so that when you're in like a daily conversation with someone you check in with them whether they are interested in what you have to say unless you're getting some nod or some sign that they're interested in what you have to say you have to zip zip.com to keep us in focus in terms of what we're doing here that we're looking at the steps in relationship to self-esteem and we are looking at six pillars of self-esteem and interestingly enough when i glanced at the book itself he actually has a seventh pillar at the end of the conclusion of the book which is willingness and it so, so ties wonderfully into step seven. My experience with step seven <clears throat> is that. Chad says carpet is not the most hygienic choice of flooring, but it's a lot more comfortable to sleep on carpet than to sleep on a wooden floor. So I tried so many ways to become a better person. I tried to become a, a Christian missionary. When I was a kid, that was my aim. I was going to go to deepest, darkest Africa in India, save souls for Jesus. I tried to become a world champion marathon runner. I tried to become a great journalist. I tried to become an economist. I, I tried to become a Jewish evangelist, convert to, to Judaism and take ethical monotheism to the world to you know embody Dennis Prager's teachings and try to teach the world how to be good. Oh, I, you know, embraced, what else did I embrace? Uh, Kundalini yoga. I, I've read hundreds of self-help books. 
and nothing worked. 10 years of therapy, nothing made any substantial change till Alexander Technique started to soften me up from my habitual reactions to life that weren't serving me. So I had way too much body armoring going on. So I was not alive and present to the, the present moment. And then finding a 12-step community with people who had similar crippling emotional addictions to myself. When I saw the havoc that you know various emotional addictions, such as with relationships, with work, with money, with, with debting, oh, how, how they crippled and hampered and held down my life, just coming to terms with that enormous sense of loss, how despite the best of intentions, I just you know, remain the same you know, basic maladaptively selfish person who, who kept you know getting in his own way no matter you know what what self-help techniques i tried but finding a 12-step community finding sponsorship finding steps finding tools finding principles finding uh, prayer meditation that actually spoke to me uh, that from just my experience was was the one thing that enabled me to start to be able to live at ease with myself so now as a guiding principle for my life, I try to make choices that uh, diminish my tendencies to loathe myself. So I want to be building self-respect as I go through the day. That's my, my overarching principle. At four years of sobriety, I met a man who was a mechanic with the big book and for the very first time understood that it is a textbook with precise directions in there as to how to apply the steps. But regardless of my education, etc. I was not able to read it on my own and he was the one that unpacked it allowing me to see that pathetic Herbie here in the cartoon. So there are all sorts of books that I can't really much appreciate on their own. So if I just dip into the Torah, it doesn't really do much for me. If I just dip into the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it doesn't do much for me. If I just dip into Shakespeare, it usually doesn't do much for me. I need commentary. I need commentary to you know unlock what's in the text and get teachers to you know explain things to me is in addiction jail the bondage of addiction but that the real bondage was the bondage of self unmanageability and i didn't know that i didn't know that the 12 steps are a process a methodology oh certainly created to deal with alcohol and then expanded to deal with addiction in the broadest of senses but my own experience now and perspective on the 12 steps is that it's a human development process for freedom because it's a process that allows me to develop a relationship with power, those first three steps. You could put the word God in there. I didn't. I just used the word power because I think it's the best representative word for what I need, a power, a relationship with power other than myself to be determined by myself. You could use the term life there with a capital L. You could use the term higher self there. So we, we often talk to people on this show who are going on all sorts of self-improvement tips. They need to lose weight. They need to work out more. They need to read more books. They need to earn more money. They want to volunteer more. But where do you get the power to sustain these intentions? That lack of power was, was holding me back. So I primarily get power from my relationships with other people, from working with people, sponsoring people, being sponsored, uh, talking to people who suffer from the same crippling emotional addictions that, that I do, having that kind of concrete community where we share experience and strength and hope, that for me is a source of power that I had not previously known on an ongoing basis. And that has enabled me to you know, overcome things that were previously holding me back, such as I'm 10 years no fap. 
but this process leads us then to steps four through seven, which is establishing a relationship with myself. I had no idea. Right. I, I want a relationship with myself that is not self-loathing. It's not filled with self-hatred. It's not filled with contempt and disgust and, and revulsion. So today, to the best of my knowledge, right, I haven't done much that I would loathe myself for. Like, I, I screwed up there a couple of minutes of dead air. So I had dead air on two occasions, which were unnecessary if I'd simply executed better, paid more attention, done, done more preparation, right? I, I wouldn't have had those moments of dead air, but I don't hate myself for it because, guys, what is, is two minutes of dead air in what is an otherwise scintillating two-and-a-half-hour show? I had low self-esteem because I was in the delusion of my grandiosity and uh, bondage of my narcissism until I did this. So I got up at, uh, I think, 3.06 a.m., took a shower, had my weekly cup of coffee, and then worked on my Dennis Prager story, right? How I came to find Dennis Prager, the, the effect that he had on my life. That's a, a blog post. So I, I worked on that. I worked on my Decoding Dennis Prager blog post. Uh, did, did some exercises. Ate my brekkie. Uh, made a few notes for this show. Right. And I got my washing done. The washing's in the dryer right now, right? Three weeks of washing just piling up. I had no clean undies left, right? It was, it was getting serious here. And now my washing's in the shower. It, my washing's in the dryer. I'm going to be able to pull it out in about half an hour, bed dinkum, put it away. Satisfying morning. And coming up at 2.30 p.m. my time, I've got Ronnie Goldman, the philosopher and attorney, coming back. And we're going to talk about understanding the different philosophies that the left and the right apply to things such as COVID, COVID response, and to issues of uh, transsexuals. This work. And today I, I, I made a connection that I've never made before. So do I ever hang laundry out to dry? No. But that is the norm in Australia. In, the nor in Australia, almost everyone hangs their laundry out. That was one of the shockers. When I, I went back to Australia after high school I, in America, everyone I knew put their laundry in the dryer. But in Australia, almost everyone I knew put their laundry on the line and they only used their dryer in emergency. I assume because uh, the price of electricity was relatively like three times or four times as much in Australia compared to America. But almost nobody I know in, in Los Angeles or anywhere I've lived in the United States has put their, have put their clothes on the line. Steps four through five, inventory and full disclosure, that changed my perception. But step six and seven changed my behavior. Yeah. yeah. So Curious Gazelle says, throat chakra 40, your words and your actions are not aligned. So do I have all sorts of weird interfering tension patterns going on around my lips, around my throat, in my neck, face, head, neck, back relationship? Uh, let me just take a pause, let go of everything that I think I know. Move from a place of judgment to a, to a place of just perceiving, just noticing what's going on without the need to judge it. Seeing both sides of the room simultaneously and everything in between, softening my eyes, softening my attitude. <laughs> right, it was like, it was an insight I had never had, 39 years over, doing this work many times, but thinking about what we're going to be talking about tonight. Step seven, humbly asked, that's prayer. Prayer doesn't change God. Prayer changes the prayer by making me more conscious. 
to remove our shortcomings. In step six, we saw we're powerless. In step four, we saw we're powerless. In step two, we saw ourselves powerless. Each of those. Yeah, I, I think the issue is lack of power. Now, some people might be able to get their power from burning special scented candles. Other people might be able to get their power just from their iron discipline. They, they have to do 50 pull-ups every morning. Uh, other people will get their power from someone who loves them, from, from family or from a relationship. Other people may get their power from the, the esteem of, of people in their life or being part of an elite community or being part of an elite profession. But where do you get your power, right? You need power to do difficult things. And it's difficult to overcome one's maladaptive responses to reality. Even steps, the naming steps. And each of the odd steps, decision steps to take some action. And this action in step seven is in fact a prayer. It, it, it's so... Curious Gazelle says gardens are a concept in Australia. That's why you can hang laundry outside to dry. LA horticulture is far too prim and proper and fake with their fake grass. Well, there are a lot of beautiful gardens in Beverly Hills in particular, Beverlywood, uh, Bel Air, Santa Monica. But you'll see beautiful gardens, lush landscaping, but no one's hanging their clothes out to dry. Simplest step that there's only one paragraph, page 76, the second paragraph in the big book. And the entire paragraph is just a prayer. But it does begin my creator, which is an interesting perspective on what we're addressing here. At least my take on it is, oh, this is my structure. This is who I am. I'm built with these instincts. Bill says instincts gone awry. Ah, Curious Gazelle says, yes, exactly, 40. You don't want to cheapen the lavish landscaping look with laundry. People in the west side of LA, they're just too prim and proper. So Los Angeles used to be the most white Anglo-Saxon Protestant country, city in the United States. Like prior to World War II, Los Angeles was the most wasp country city in the United States and it's since become uh, much more diverse but the, the wash the wasp heritage still still has a, a profound effect he says self will run riot yes I've seen that in step four and it got confirmed in step five and I looked at my step six to see how it manifests in my behavior and in the United States a lot of condos and co-ops explicitly prohibit hanging laundry outside Step four was identifying these obstacles for the very first time I was in. That was absolutely life-changing for me when I did a step four, when I listed out everyone I resented. So there were even family members there. There were close friends. There were ex-friends. There were rabbis. There were ex-girlfriends. There were people who had mocked at me and made fun of me. There were all sorts of people I've gotten into feuds with. And then seeing the significant role that I played in creating all these resentments, how I'd stepped on other people's toes and then they retaliated. Ah, that was life-changing and that, that all went down in about two hours and something like June of 2013 or June of 2012 and I, I think it, it, uh, it was a permanent emotional correction that I experienced that day. Embarrassed in my own presence, seeing the delusion of my beliefs the corruption of my motives. I am not being exaggerating. In fact, I'm understating my... Right, so I, at age 57 now, I, I don't want to subscribe to any causes because I'm just going to bring discredit upon them. If I join any movement, all right, my critical brain is going to take over and I'm going to start to feel an undeniable need to publicly critique you know, whatever I, I've joined. I will 
feel this overwhelming need to you know read whatever supposedly rebuts or refutes you know my my latest allegiance so I, I enjoy being part of communities i tend to step away from being part of activism i'm much more comfortable standing back and trying to analyze things rather than promoting anything embarrassment and my uh, reaction to seeing the truth for the very first time four years sober especially once i disclosed it out loud am i on good terms with all the people i listed on my resentment list i would say most of the people on my resentment list they're not in my life so people i've had fallings out with i usually haven't repaired them to the extent that that they are you know ongoing relationships so certainly didn't uh, reach out to ex-girlfriends and try to you know repair the damage i thought they'd probably do more harm than good you know let them get on with their their own lives their own loves their own their own families uh in a on a number of occasions it uh, did bring about a a healing in the relationship but but most people who were primarily on my resentment list there was no uh, grand reconciliation but i did see my role and so i was able to kind of climb off my high horse and it enabled me to just be more effective at navigating reality but there weren't a lot of uh, tearful reunions reading my step four out loud which i had accumulated and written over several months but sitting there reading it to a man who witnessed it reading it consecutively and out loud within an hour or two it washed over me as to not only the embarrassment of the impact, the impact of the, my behavior on myself, but more especially the impact of my behavior on other people. I had never seen it the way I saw it at that moment. And over the weekend, I put a list of... Okay, comment in the chat. Laundry hung out to dry in LA, would get stained by the smog. Recently mentioned the song, Everybody Wants to Change the World. Now it's Everybody Wants to Rule the World, Tears for Fears. Does everyone want to rule his own world? Well... I think the more agency we feel, the happier we are. So people, generally speaking, the less agency they feel, the more unhappy they feel. So when more and more of your life is not, it's not under your control, such as having a long commute and you don't get to determine uh, traffic patterns and accidents, right? The, the more of your life that is outside of your ability to you know, have, have a say in what's going down, I think, generally speaking, people feel less happy. People want to be able to rule their own world in the sense that they want to be able to go a day without hating themselves, without creating reasons to hate themselves. So it's really important to me that like all the actions I take kind of work together. And yeah, I'll inevitably make m mistakes here. But overall, to the best of my knowledge, there aren't you know, these powerful opposing streams flowing through my life. Like how I make money, how I you know pray, how I study Torah, the things I do on a, a live stream, the things I write on a blog, how I spend my spare time, the the friends I hang out with, the, the community I'm I'm in, the dating that I do, it it all pretty much largely works together. They're not like it's not like just opposing forces just constantly going to war. So I want to be stacking up wins through the day, from stacking up wins in prayer, meditation, the cold shower. The, the exercise, e eating decently, uh, earning money, uh, meeting my responsibilities, uh, having some fun, intellectual stimulation, uh, you know, getting in 12-step uh, uh, meetings, 12-step uh, sponsees, sponsors, 
uh, talking to people in 12-step programs and, uh, you know, reading the books and the articles that I, I want, I, I, I feel like for at least six, six years or so, these things have largely worked together in my life. And as I experience my life, it just keeps getting better over the past six years. Right? It's not like my life is just some, you know, inexorable march uphill. But the last six years is consistently getting better, paying off credit card debt, developing savings, developing skills. The character defects together, which were pretty uh, visible, and spent some time in meditation listing them, not to punish me. Not yeah, internal conflict is exhausting. Yeah, and that's what used to characterize my life. I w my internal dialogue would go something like this. You stupid mother effer, you're the dumbest effer around. Boy, you really effed this up. But why can't you just be normal? <laughs> All right. So I was just constantly at odds with myself, with my own best interests, just running around in circles, like trying to be an Orthodox Jew while also you know, writing about the pornography industry on a daily basis, uh, trying to get married while you know, simultaneously you know, banging everything female that would allow me to have a go. That was not conducive to calm, to liking myself, to thriving. Not to shame me, not to guilt me. No, 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 no. To identify. So, okay, so what are the... Yes. Is there a certain turning point I identify? Yes. The first beginning turning point when I went to a 12-step program to do with, with love addiction and, and porn addiction and sex addiction. But that was that was a turning point, but it was... It was mild to moderate. The, the turning point was the first time I went to Debtors Anonymous and 12-step programs that dealt with under-earning. And, and, you know, how, how do you relate to money and, and to work and to earning and prosperity? So that happened in May of 2015. That was a huge turning point in my life because after that, I was able to start, you know, tracking my earnings, tracking my spending, and, and making those minute notes right on on paper then uh, on my computer it gave me a greater greater feel of, of mastery of my life that i was on on top of what was going on in my life i was on top of my finances and i had a community that supported me in that so my life dramatically began to improve in may of 2015 with my first 12-step programs dealing with with debting earning under earning prosperity the moving parts of this machine called her I was willing to have them all removed. I mean, that's what the essence of step six is, to remove the shortcomings. I was willing to change. Ask yourself, are you willing to change? Do you? So getting a sponsor, right? The various sponsors I had, they were not turning points. They were useful, but they were not turning points. It was getting into the program and doing the work on my own, but with a community and with people that I'd turn to for guidance. But uh, getting, getting a, the times that I, I got a sponsor, they weren't huge turning points. I was already so committed that uh, I take notes with pretty much every 12-step meeting I attended, and then I try to take one or two things out of every 12-step meeting that I attended and apply them to my life. And it gave me the energy that I hadn't had before. So in those early stages of 2015, 2016, 2017, I was jumping on two, three meetings a day, listening to recorded talks, and it, it gave me the strength and the energy to go from working 20 to 30 hours a week to working 40 to 60 hours a week. 20 to 16, I was able to uh, double the, the money that I was earning and then triple the money I was earning compared to 2015. 
And so then life really started taking off. Except that you're powerless over your inclination. Are you powerless over your behavior and somewhat responsible for it? Yeah. So walking into a room with fellow love addicts, fellow sex addicts, fellow porn addicts, that was huge. Like it just kind of calmed down my system. It's like, yeah, I'm not the only screw up around here. I was able to identify with everything, with, with everyone, with, with at least one thing that they shared. And so that, that calmed my central nervous system. It's like, ah, I'm home. There was a, a book from my childhood that just had such great resonance to me, just the title. I, I don't think I read much of the book, but it was called A Place for You by the Christian psychiatrist Paul Tournier, A Place for You. So that need that there's a place for me is just so important for me. And I found that in 12-step programs. So then finding 12-step programs that dealt with, with poverty, debting, under-earning, under-achieving. Oh, just such a relief that... Uh, other people had the same problems that I did, and they'd found a way out. And it wasn't that complicated, right? I could do it. Like, I, I saw what they were saying, I saw what they were doing, and I applied what they were saying and doing to my own life, and it worked. And then I got excited about that, and I passed it on to other people. And as I passed it on, that also filled me up with more sense of power and agency. These were the two um, insights that I had at that time. I remember it so clearly, 1988. I remember. I was so excited by, I think, for the first meeting of Debtors Anonymous. I was just dying to get out there and look for a better job right away. And then I was just dying to come back to the group and say, oh, this program has really changed my life. I went out there and got a better job because I had people that I could you know, share this with and who'd, who'd celebrate it with me. And, you know, we'd you know, celebrate things together. We were like uh, people who'd survived a plane crash. That's like... You'd think that that would be an intense bond. Well, if you've overcome debting and under-earning and the poverty mindset, then if you overcome that together, it creates a powerful bond. I went into the room to pray the, set, the, the, uh, the, the prayer for the removal of my deep resentment. But I had learned something. I was ready. I believed in the power of God. <clears throat> I knew that this was blocking these character defects. These manifestations of resentment and fear and dishonesty and selfishness, all of the areas that I had looked at in step four and their manifestations in my behavior in a variety of ways. I may have had 30 or 40, and I distilled them down to see that, in fact, the exact nature of these were coming out of my instincts, my primal survival instincts of fight, flight, and freeze. These were the obstacles to me, my relationship with myself. I was willing to pray, and I prayed the prayer from the book. The next day, I was very... So as long as I was masturbating to pornography, I didn't, <laughs> didn't get much recovery, right? As long as porn was in my life, I, I didn't get to sustain much of a relationship with God, with, with holiness, with, with holy community. It just kind of fed my self-hatred, self-loathing, which made my relationship with myself more difficult and my relationship with other people more difficult. And uh, it, it just wasn't possible for my life to take off when I was in in the grip of pornography very clear that i still had these character defects i went to a meeting my men's stag meeting which is a crosstalk meeting on the steps and i heard somebody so normally in a 12-step meeting there's no crosstalk right you don't uh, give advice when other people share you only share from your own experience but in a in those rare 12-step crosstalk meetings you're allowed to to give advice if it's coming from your own personal experience Somebody shared that they prayed specifically for the removal of a specific character defect. 
It's not in the book. It's not in the 12 and 12. It hadn't been talked about in the meeting, but this was his experience. And I listened to it because he got free. Prayed specifically for the removal of a specific character defect. Was I willing to do that? Well, I went home and I thought about it for a day or two. Don't want to rush into anything like that. So my life was crippled by this inner compulsion I had to try to manipulate most interactions so that I got the maximum of attention. And by attending these 12-step meetings, even more powerfully than 10 years of therapy, it kind of calmed down my central nervous system. So I felt a little less intense need to extract the maximum of attention out of every interaction. So I got to calm down a little bit inside, which made my interactions with other people less needy and less attention-seeking, which enabled them to feel more relaxed being with me. And then as other people felt more relaxed and content to be around me, I had less need to act out and extract attention. So it kind of formed a virtuous cycle. And I went into my room and I shut my door. I didn't want to see have anybody in my house. I'm full family, wife and three children, teenagers. Don't want to see them on my knees. This man had said, get on your knees to pray the prayer and pray it specifically. We get on our knees not to get God's attention, he said, but to get our own attention, to have a consciousness of what our intention is. We get our attention to our intention. Nice play on words. Spend some time with that. And I went to pray the prayer. And I had to stop because I couldn't pray it specifically for the removal of a specific character. And Joe says anybody saying that they had a personal relationship with Aphrodite would be deemed mad. But there are all sorts of mad things that you can claim that uh, are often adaptive, right? So believing that you're a very important person, believing that uh, the importance of your live stream is greater than it really is, that's probably adaptive for me and that it gives me strength and energy to do a live stream. So we're all the center of our own worlds you know we all tend to imbue our own lives with you know greater significance than it really has so that's you know probably a delusion that is adaptive so most delusions are maladaptive some delusions are adaptive character defect because i wasn't willing at all i was too invested in this behavior and i paused remembering the step six suggestion that if we're not willing we pray for the willingness and i prayed for the willingness Just a simple prayer. I prayed the prayer from the big book, my creator. I needed to be recreated. And I called the man who took me through the steps and I told him about, I got on. So have you experienced like this endless desire to be rid of an unwanted self so that you just go on a a cavalcade of, you know, self-help programs and spiritual programs and religious changes and, you know, fitness changes and, you know, change geography, change profession, you know, change friends, change sexual orientation. Okay, it didn't, didn't go there, but I'm sure people, you know, have messed around thinking, oh man, it's just so difficult relating to the opposite sex. Maybe everything would be easier you know, if I just, you know, related to the same sex. But uh, if you ever get to calm down, you ever get to feel safe, then you have less need to act out and to sabotage your best interests. On my knees and I wasn't willing and then I was willing and then I prayed and he said, wow, what a great insight. You discovered that you weren't willing. He said, now stop the behavior. So I heard all my life about having a relationship with God, loving God, and it just was too much, right? I heard it so often it just became a cliche. So I find it much more meaningful most of the time to think about having a relationship with reality having a a positive relationship with reality, recognize and respecting reality, recognizing that reality is not going to change to adapt to me, 
I have to constantly adapt and change myself in the face of reality, which is just another word for God. And he gave me a new insight. I'm powerless over the inclination, but I'm 100% responsible for how it manifests in my life. Right. So I have all sorts of self-destructive impulses, you know, towards sexual promiscuity, to attention-seeking, to excitement-seeking. Those are my impulses. I am responsible for managing my life so that those impulses don't wreck me and wreck others. So I may not have much direct control when those impulses get really, you know, intense. What I need to do is create a series of situations and states whereby those impulses are mild. And if I have some other impulses that I can ratchet up in intensity, such as, you know, doing my job, exploring ideas that are interesting to me, you know, building on my friendships and, and relationships and, you know, sense of community, then the adaptive impulses become more intense and more powerful than the maladaptive impulses and life gets better. Am I willing to be accountable? He said, this is how it's going to work. You pray every day for the change in your income. Okay, sorry, I missed a question from Curious Gazelle about uh, cousins. All right. So, do I think cousins are competitors? So in my life, because my parents, my, my mother and father and my stepmother all essentially became alienated from their families as they converted to this strange religion of Seventh-day Adventism, I have grown up not really understanding what a cousin is, kind of struggling with the whole concept of aunts and uncles. So due to my parents being largely alienated from their families, I was largely alienated from extended family. So extended family played you know, very little role in my life. And so I had to constantly ask, you know, what is a cousin? What is an aunt or uncle? You know, what does that mean? So I have not experienced a uh, desire to compete with, with cousins because extended family just hasn't been there in my life. So normal human connection is like frequently just a foreign language for me. Also, because I moved to the United States with my, my parents at age 11 and all my extended family lives in Australia, I just haven't had much to do with them. So with the uh, wasps, I think are the one people where they don't live for their children. It's the most individualist culture of, of which I'm aware. And uh, family seems to play a, a weaker role than it does in almost any other culture that I know well, such as traditional European, Middle Eastern cultures and uh, traditional Asian cultures. So when my therapist would ask me, are you close with your family? I'd say about, you know, average close for, for white people because we were you know, probably closer than your typical, uh, typical family, that, you know, typical urban family that is, you know, highly disrupted, but less close than traditional European and Asian families. So, yeah, competing with your extended family or feeling highly competitive with your extended family, I think that would be maladaptive for most people. You'd, you'd probably be better off having, having a sense of what you have in common with your family and your extended family and your friends and your community. Focusing on that, focusing on what win-win solutions. Inclination and behavior. And every day you call me and you tell me how... Wasp not living for their children, is this good or bad according to you? 
I think it's probably, I'm not sure. I, I see many benefits to it because it is often off-putting when you see you know, parents seemingly over-invested in their children and just desperately needing to tell you that their children went to Harvard or, or Princeton or just you know, constantly boasting about their children. I would never have want, wanted my parents to show up to any of my athletic contests or to you know, anything I, I was doing publicly. It would have been incredibly embarrassing to me. I mean, this idea that my parents would drive me to practice uh, is just a foreign language to me. I would leave the house at like 7 a.m. and, you know, I'd come home at uh, 5 p.m. And, you know, that time was largely my own. And so helicopter parents, parents, you know, living through me, you know, parents saying, okay, we'll pay for your college, but only if you study what I want you to study. That just seems suffocating to me. But then I'm coming from an experience of, you know, a, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant upbringing. So that is what's normal to me to the extent that whatever I had is is normal. So a lot of people s said to me, you know, I'm so sorry you didn't get a normal upbringing. You wouldn't, you would not have had to go on all these, you know, weird adventures and change your religion and, you know, go on all these self-improvement kicks if uh, only you'd grown up in a normal home. How you're behaving. Not in the book. It's not in any writing I've ever read. But it was my experience. Within 24 hours, the behavior changed. Never returned. Within 24 hours, the behavior changed and it never returned. The inclination stayed with me for two, three years. I don't actually remember. It's 30 years ago. <clears throat> but I continued to pray every day specifically for the change, not only in the inclination and the behavior. I called him once a week because it wasn't necessary to call him once a month. So he's talking here about overcoming adultery. So he had a uh, high-paying fairly prestigious position, and so he had access to a lot of women who was in, in sales. Uh, I'm sure there are, there are adaptive ways of competing with your siblings, competing with your family, competing with your extended family, right? There, there are adaptive and healthy ways to do competition, and there are you know, maladaptive and unhealthy ways to do it. So I guess it depends on the individual, the situation, the, the family. And I called him once a month later on, but eventually even the inclination went away. How I like what Glib Medley says. Forty was a coach's son on God's ball field. Yeah, I was a preacher's kid, so everything I did, I reported back to my preacher daddy, and he would see me largely through the lens of how did I reflect on his Christian missionary, on his Christian mission. So I remember if I'd fall down and scrape my knee, my dad would like yank me up and say, "Oh, he's fine, he's fine." I couldn't answer for myself, but I couldn't express that I was experiencing some pain. Like, oh, he's fine, because once you're with Jesus, you, you know, you're not nearly as susceptible or vulnerable to pain. He wanted to show that, you know, I was tough and that, you know, I had a good relationship with God so that I didn't curse and swear or complain when I, you know, fell and bloodied my knees. Free do you want to be? How soon? <laughs> it's such a... Yeah, it, it's right. Someone, you know, asked me, who are you? I was at the Glacier View conference in... August of 1980, my father was on trial, so the leaders of the Seventh-day Adventist Church had come together at this Denver, outside of Denver, retreat, about 9,000 feet high. And first day we got there, I went jumping into the pool, and this older man, you know, asked me, who are you? And I said, I am the son of the man you are crucifying. And when my dad got crucified at that conference, uh, one of his supporters came over and said he would it would pay my way through medical school if I decided to go that route. Powerful formula. I don't know how it works. I do know that it works.
and the people who I've shared this experience with who have embraced the methodology, praying specifically for the removal of a specific character defect and holding themselves accountable to somebody on a regular basis, experience the change. So even though by about age 15, I wasn't much of a Christian, uh, I still strongly identified with my dad's fortunes. So when my dad suffered, when my dad was excoriated, when my dad was criticized, like it was like, you know, an attack on me. And, and even though I became an atheist, I still saw my father as this heroic truth teller, this heroic figure. Then I went to UCLA and I adopted a virtual father in Dennis Prager. And then I came to see like Dennis Prager is the epitome of what a father should be. And I began to de virtually completely devalue my own father and think, oh, you know, how inferior he is to my idealistic conception of, you know, Dennis Prager as my virtual father. So in the course of a few months, you know, I went from, you know, putting my father on a pedestal, to putting my father in the trash heap. And that is my lifelong pattern. It's, it's very common with narcissists. We tend to idealize and then devalue people. It's not often that narcissists, you know, take people that they once devalued, but then idealize them. So one of the importance of situationism to me is recognizing that in different situations, you know, people will, will shine or fail. If you think someone's heroic or just particularly great, you're really only seeing them in a particular situation that there will be plenty of situations in which they're not going to thrive. So everybody hurts, everybody cries, everybody, you know, fails and is vulnerable in different situations. That kind of helped me, I think, overcome my tendencies towards idealizing and devaluing people. There's uh, six characteristics of uh, the pillars that Roger articulated right at the beginning of this process. Consciousness, self-acceptance, self-responsibility, self-assertiveness, purpose, integrity, and that seventh is willingness. I don't believe I need to comment on the tie to self-esteem. It's almost self-evident but perhaps the panel will talk about the connections. Thanks. Thank you, Herb. I'm gonna bring in the other discussants at this point. Hi, kids. Good evening. If we're kids, you must be dad. You must be pop. Hi, pop. <laughs> That's me. No, I, I think I'm the, I'm the young one among us, aren't I? I think I'm the youngest guy here. That's why, at, that's this, at this stage, I don't think we need to pursue this. <laughs> <laughs> Humbly asked him to shut his mouth. Is that, <laughs> was that, hold it, did I misread the step tonight? <laughs> Humbly asked him to shut his mouth so that we can get on with business. That's no, no great shakes there, Tom. It's not, no, no. Well, it's, yeah, it's not. It's, <laughs> we, oh. we set, the four of us set the bar pretty low anyways, in, in various ways. So it's, it's we're, there, we're good. Humility here. Well, it, despite ourselves, there's some humility in the room. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Exactly. Well, what a, what a powerful process and experience you had, Herb, about, you know, we've talked many times about the importance of being specific and really taking, you know, ownership of that issue that was causing you so much grief and conflict. I mean, in your life, I, I have, a, I think, a unique position to understand the incredible suffering you had with that. I mean, I'll take the mystery out of it. It was infidelity and it was ruining my entire life in every aspect. Yeah. You know? okay. It was, and you were walking around just to, you know, you know, there, there was a phrase used um, called torn to pieces, but, and that's what you were, man. You were torn to pieces. You just, you could not have any real peace of mind. And so Alan Berger was like a step guide to Herb K early on in Herb K's recovery. So Alan Berger here, U.S. Marine, he was an alcoholic who got 
12-step help in 1960s in Hawaii, became a psychologist. And then when Herb Kay was recovering in the mid-1980s, uh, Alan Berger here played a significant role in his recovery. Until you somehow dealt with that conflict inside of you. And, you know, it, it's so interesting because I had such a very similar experience with the obsession to drink and use and even smoke cigarettes. They all were lifted at the same time for me, right around the same time. And it was it was really, when I look back at it, it was exactly what you're talking about. I got to the point where I could really see it was time to change this behavior. And it wasn't just a result of my incredible intelligence or awareness or anything. I mean, it really was a result of the suffering is that I got to the point where I was really honest about the pain I was in. Right, when the pain of continuing on the path that you're currently proceeding on is greater than the pain of changing, that's when you'll change. So as long as you know, continuing on just doing the same old thing seems less painful to you than changing, you're going to just continue on doing the same old thing. But when the pain overwhelms you of your current habits, that's when you reach out for, for help. Usually most people have to get into their 40s before they you know, look for help, such as from therapy or 12-step programs. And, you know, that phrase about being sick and tired of being sick and tired, I knew what that felt like. That, that, that you know, so, you know, I really appreciate you being so open and vulnerable about that. And I hope it inspires some people here to be that honest with themselves about what's going on. You've got to name it if you're going to heal it. You've got to name it. And, and so many people, you know, I'll never forget Garrett, Dr. Garrett O'Connor. He was just a, a very gift to psychiatry, to the recovery community. He was for many years, the medical director at the Betty Ford Center and stuff like that. I went to a workshop he did in Santa Monica for the International Doctors and Alcoholics Anonymous. And he gave this whole presentation at the beginning of the presentation. Said, With all the guys in here that are in recovery, will you raise your hands if you went to a massage parlor and, and got a happy ending? Mm -hmm. So there's 300 doctors in the room, right? About 10 guys raised their hand, right? 10 guys raised their hand. He gives this talk about honesty and stuff like that. The other he says, all right, now that I've talked to you guys about getting out, how many of you, 10 guys didn't raise their hand? <laughs> I mean, it was, it was a remarkable thing that there's so much difficulty and shame in admitting certain things. That, that So thank God I've never gotten a hand job or a blow job or gone to one of these illicit massage parlors because I know I would just find it incredibly addicting. Now, I've never directly paid for, for sex. You know, I've never... I had a hooker or masseuse to, you know, wank me off because I, I know I would love it way too much. And the notion that it was, you know, always available. Ooh. That have happened in our past or in our, even in our current life, in our recovery. And I'm telling you, you know, when you share like this, man, you really open the door for people to take a look at it. So I just, I wanted to just start out with an appreciation and you demonstrate it. You modeled the first part of the step, humbly asked, right? To have these shortcomings removed. And you really did that. I mean, that's the, Okay, some of my favorite thinkers on recovery there. That's it for now. I will be back in three and a half hours. Bye-bye.